Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only color fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. The Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEN. Welcome back. We've ticked over 7pm Eastern Daylight Time here on SEN as we welcome in this portion of the show, which is, of course, known as the Sporting Capital after a decent edition of the Maccas. Rudd, apologies for the tech issues as well, but it was great to chat with Matt Hill, ahead of the Cox Plate, and former Australian cricket captain Kim Hughes for his thoughts on a wide variety of formats that we're seeing in cricket, both domestically and internationally. And speaking of international tournaments, I've just gotten underway in the clash between Namibia and the United Arab Emirates down at Geelong. And the UAE won the toss and have elected to bat. So they will kick things off down there at GMHBA Stadium. Plenty of action in the NBL as well. Just a quick live score update there. A bit of a boil over when you consider the form line coming, although it's still early in the season. Early in the fourth, Southeast Melbourne Phoenix leading the New Zealand Breakers 86 to 61. The Breakers, of course, coming into this game with a decent amount of form. And joining us on the line to talk all things NBL, there's still another match to come tonight as well. We're Beginning, obviously, to gain an understanding as the, as the potential narrative, I think, of the NBL season with round four already underway. Nathan Stremple, NBL commentator, joins us on the line. How are you, Nathan? Very good. It's good to have NBL hoops back underway. Yeah, absolutely. What have you made of the match so far? The Breakers came into the clash in good form. The Phoenix have struggled a little bit, although they do have better personnel out there on the court compared to maybe their last couple of matches. Well, they'd be loving life. They, they, they knew they were coming in with injuries, so they get Kel and Brown, their backcourt import tandem in today, and they would have thought maybe they'd take a bit of time to gel, but the fact that they, as a team, you know, and get that result, it looks like they'll do that today. Uh, it's great times for them, and they really needed it because they had been a bit sluggish to start the season. All right. And what about the Phoenix in terms of using this potential victory? This is assuming they can hold on as a bit of a fire starter for their season. Can they string a number of wins together, do you think? Winning does lots of things. Really, now they have a different issue that they've got all this personnel. So yeah. they, they get the, the two import guards come in. They've also brought in Joe Chi. So they've got this log game with their big Tron with Alex Alan Williams, uh, ex Phoenix Suns. You know, a legit double double threat. But Simon Mitchell is only playing in 15, 20 minutes a game. He's trying to find minutes for Dane Pinot and Joe Chi around that. So it makes them exciting to watch. I think it'll just come down to people finding their role and, and getting that rotation sorted, but tonight's a good result for them. 
That's it. And good to see Kyle Adam, who's a local out there at the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. 14 points to his name after 21 minutes on the courts. So it looks like they should hold on. Still a little bit to go in that encounter. But there's another match, of course, later on tonight. Melbourne United taking on the Cairns Taipans. It's a difficult one to read for me. The Taipans rebounding from a poor loss to Perth with a win over Sydney. How do you think tonight's match will play out? It's really dangerous for Melbourne. We talked about the Phoenix coming in and getting a much-needed win. United need to do the same. They've uh, they've been hit with some lumps to start the season. Losing Ariel Hutt-Forty was tough for them. As a as a next star, he goes and snaps the Achilles, and they can't replace him. So Isaac Humphries wasn't meant to play significant minutes. He's now having to start at the five, and they're trying to work out their rotation. Tucker uh, hasn't quite dominated as much as he predicted he would so far. He, he starts actually shooting a bit of a better clip then they're going to be looking all right. But they really need that win. And Cairns are tough because they play free. Adam Ford lets them go. Keanu Pinder is a great athlete. And he's their most important player. Everything revolves around Pinder. So it'll be a massive matchup tonight to see how much juice Isaac Humphries has got and then if he can go with Pinder. Well, you mentioned Pinder. He's averaging 17.25 points per game. How do they nullify his influence realistically across the entirety of the game? Because you mentioned those matchups. I mean... What's his great strength that they really need to nullify? Oh, Pinder's an incredible athlete. So you talk about scoring numbers, but he just is their driver for their energy. So if he's not scoring, he's attacking the glass, creating opportunities for his teammates. So the case they need someone to run with him. Now, it'll be Isaac Humphrey's start. Jordan Caroline for United hasn't really hit his straps yet, but he's also an incredible athlete. Maybe it's a case of Caroline trying to run with Pinder and just match one athlete against the other and see if they can nullify that matchup to then see where they can exploit other strengths across the court. Now Jordan Caroline, according to many, has been a little bit underwhelming so far for the Melbourne United side. What primarily has to change in the way he approaches his game to make a significant impact on the court? Uh, Caroline, we find often import bigs find it uh, slow, well, difficult to adjust to how the game's refereed here in Australia. So Caroline... You look at him, he, he actually could go and play in the NFL. Apparently he has a choice to continue a professional basketball career or go play American football. That's the kind of athlete he is. So he's found he gets himself a bit of tra- foul trouble with some over-exuberance. So if he can stay on the floor due to staying out of foul trouble, it's a pretty important piece to United because, like I said, without seven-footer Ariel Hupporty, Caroline becomes really important. If he's in foul trouble and can't play, what we've seen the last few weeks is David Barlow, who came out of retirement to play with this group playing extra minutes just because they need another big on the floor. Speaking with NBL commentator Nathan Strimple, if you have any NBL questions, feel free to flick them through via text 0433981116 off the temper text machine. At the Sydney Kings, they've been in good form. They take on Adelaide. What did you make of Paul Smith's comments, firstly, the Sydney Kings owner, when he said Adelaide had been talking themselves up as if they were the Golden State Warriors? That had some spice, doesn't it? It may inadvertently give the opposition team a bit of a spark in a way. Oh, Paul Smith is uh, not a, an owner to sit quietly in the corner. And he knows exactly what he's saying and he knows how his group responds. And uh, the Kings tend to like that. I, I think they respond well when um, Paul makes outlandish comments like that. He kind of likes bringing the hype around his team and, and they play well. They refer themselves to the dogs to go out and fight. Um, so I think that would just get them rolling. But you're right. It might give the 36 a kick and they probably already themselves a kick because they've gone over and done something no team's ever done in beating the Phoenix Suns, beating an NBA team. 
But then we come back, it's a pretty grueling trip. So give them a bit of a leeway to be a bit off the money on that first round. They'll be coming out ready to go tomorrow night. They're a good rebounding side as well, the Sydney Kings. I mean, they did have that loss, obviously, against Cairns, but managed to rebound against Brisbane, who albeit are struggling a little bit. But they do have that resilience about them, don't they, don't you think? Yeah, they look, they do. Uh, they're just a chance for a reason. Now, their group's a bit new. They've got some new imports, but sort of Jalen Adams, the MVP of the league, has gone out. They've got another start in Derek Walton to replace at the point guard. So they look like they've got all the tools, and, and I imagine mean, and they'll uh, they'll take that lump. It's a close league this season. There's no there's no team you're penciling in a win against. And, and we've seen some of the teams that whether their roster is it seems like it's not stacked with studs like some of the others. They come out and played really good team basketball to counter for that. So whether it's like a Tasmania or Cairns or New Zealand, you don't think's got the star power other rosters do. So far, they've been the teams that really gelled well together to play team basketball. So uh, there's no no nights off in the NBL. It's good to watch. You're right, and that makes it very entertaining. With the Brisbane Bullets, they're probably towards the bottom end of the spectrum. It is tight, the competition, so they do have the capacity, I think, to try and regenerate, reinvigorate their season. But I think the Bullets coach, James Duncan, summed it up best. Uh, it was a D-minus job of executing the game plan against the Sydney Kings. I mean, realistically, do you think they can turn things around? People were predicting them for the championship at the start of the season, and with good reason. Like You look across their roster, the names they've got, there's no reason why that team can't compete. And, and don't forget, there's, there's six sides that come through the finals this year with the playing games. So they, they have every chance to be around the mark, but they need to make a stand now. There's 0-4, pretty tough uh, schedule to start the season. Those four losses have come against really good teams, been on the road a bunch, but they need to make a stand now. And, and it was reported they had a bit of a scuffle at training. They've got DJ Mitchell missing the game due to an argument at training with James Duncan. And I'd say that's just a blow-up of competitive guys going, hey, we need to turn this thing around. Let's go out and get the result this week. That's the thing. I was just going to ask you that. Do you see it as a positive or negative that they're arguing in a way? Because some might make the argument, oh, this destabilises things. They're not getting along with each other. It's reflected in their results. But then there's the other side that says, well, at least they're showing a bit of passion and a bit of energy amongst the group. So I'm guessing, yeah. based on that comment, you'd be in the latter camp. Well, it's hard, hard to know without... Hard to make a call on that without sure. knowing exactly what was said and the dynamics of how it went down. But for them as a group, Nathan Sobey's uh, warming into the season on some minutes restriction... Aaron Baines hadn't played basketball for 18 months. He hadn't played since he won a bronze medal with the Boomers. So, yes, they're studs, but they're still getting bodies right. So I actually think it's understandable that they may not be running on full cylinders to start the season, but they're pretty dangerous as they get rolling. So I think there's every chance they can, but at the same time, they're professional athletes and, and people like to win. So when a team's not winning, you can often see a boil over like that. Speaking with NBL commentator Nathan Strimple on the line, what have you made of Tasmania's renaissance over their last few matches? They started the season poorly, but they've come back a little bit. Do you think they can maintain it against Perth on the weekend? Well, I don't know if renaissance has found on them. This is the grand final group last season, and they took a couple of lumps to start the season. But I mentioned them earlier. Scott Ross got them playing incredible team basketball. I don't think any team in this league enjoys seeing that they've got the jack jumpers. The Jackies are so tight defensively. They make it um, they make it so hard to, to score freely. And out of that, teams have really struggled. You see teams scoring in the 60s against the Jack Jumpers with that stifling defense. So they will 
they won't lose a game. Like they'll make you beat them. They just do things right. They play within their system. So they're a, they're a fun team to watch in terms of how they're bringing it all together. Because everyone likes to say, hey, they don't have the studs and the stars that the other teams do. But Ross has got them all singing from the same song book. What are your thoughts on the Cairns-Taipans? I take on the New Zealand Breakers, obviously, on Sunday. This is just their second home match in their first six games. So considering their record, if they grab a win here, it just ensures that they have the optimism that they can win. This one will be at home, but also the fact that they can string a number of wins together away from home, they could well be in the playoff equation if they keep up this form and this momentum. And because they're off-Broadway, in a sense, geographically, it probably works to their advantage because they don't have the same amount of hype. They have the Edward hype internally, but not necessarily externally to build a lot of pressure on that franchise itself. So what are your thoughts on how far the Taipans can go? Talking to guys that have played for Cairns over the years, they love it like because the Taipans are big up there. I've called a bunch of games in Cairns. You're walking down the supermarket and everyone knows who you are if you're a Taipan. And they lured, the, we talked about the jack jumpers uh, and their coach, Adam Ford, has taken a bit of a leaf out of the Jack Jumpers book. Scott Roth last year said he wants players that are hungry and humble. And Adam Ford was saying the same thing in the preseason. That's who he recruited. So he's gone after guys that may not have got the same sort of role at a different team. And to come play here, we'll give you some extra minutes. We'll give you a starting role. Wardenberg was a big recruit coming out. And a lot of teams were chasing him. But I think it was the fact that Kansas said, hey, we're going to play you. We're going to start you and you're going to get a chance to play. Same with Pinder re-signing. Bull Quoll came in as a rookie last year. So he's got these guys coming in that may not have got that opportunity at other teams. They get a chance to play. He lets them play free. He lets them play aggressive. They run hard in transition. So on any given night, they could beat any team. You took that playoff equation. There's a long season still to shake out. But I think he'd be a brave man to write any team off for missing the playoffs at this stage. That's it. And I want to get your thoughts on the Illawarra Hawks too as well, Nathan, because ultimately there's been a lot of talk about Tyler Harvey's form in recent times and his shooting woes continued last week. 12 points, hit 5 from 15, which is a bit of a mediocre high score for the Hawks in their loss to the Breakers in Wollongong on Monday. How do you think they'll go the following Monday at home? It's a few days away yet against the Brisbane Bullets. Do you think they can turn that particular result around? Well, they'll be looking forward to getting Peyton Seaver in. So yeah. Jackson Robinson was a huge loss for them. This guy was an absolute stud, NBA experience, and he looked so good on court and just a, a sad one for us in the league to, to lose him to injury. And, and sad for the Hawks, talking to people internally there, they said he was such a uh, such a great person, big fabric of the club, even post-injury, post-surgery, back around the guys still. And, and that's great to see just sad that we won't see him on court for the rest of this season so that's a big hole for him to go out so it makes it tough for Tyler Harvey like he's expecting to have a running mate next to him uh, who's a star draws a bunch of attention all of a sudden now all the defensive attention goes to Tyler uh, Lockie Dent Illawarra locals done really good stepping in the gap they're a development player and he, he, he's played phenomenally it's been great to see that story as an Illawarra boy coming in yeah. but he's not just a Robertson so like yeah, in terms of his ability to attract defensive attention and, and and let Harvey get off the hook. And it's kind of tough. So they bring in Seaver. That's going to fill out their roster, and then they'll have another look at it. But they've, they've got a few lumps so far, but I wouldn't write off the hook yet. Uh, fair enough. Nath, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us as well. Enjoy Melbourne United's game tonight and obviously the ensuing matches to come over the weekend. It'll be a fantastic spectacle. And as you said, pretty even competition holistically so far. All the best, mate. 
Appreciate the chat anytime. Good on you, Nathan Strempel there, joining us. MBL commentator has been for quite a few years now. He's a very, very good resource for knowledge. We'll take a break. Back with more on the other side. Happy to hear your calls. one 736 736 on the temper text machine as well. You can text in 0433-981116. So certainly many ways in which you can reach us. one 736 736 via the open line, as I said. More to come on the other side on the Sporting Capital for this Thursday evening. And a very big welcome back to the Sporting Capital. Damien Watson here. Sorry if I'm puffed out. We've had to move between studios here. So we're hopefully going to have a clean bill of health as far as the phones are concerned. So feel free to ring in. one 736 736 You can text it as well. 0433-981116 off the temper text machine. The UAE currently numb for 25. They won the toss and elected to bat. 25 off five overs. So... They're really only going effectively at around the rudder ball, if that. So it's a pretty slow and conservative start for the UAE down at Geelong against Namibia, who, of course, upset Sri Lanka going back just under a week ago. Also pertinent to mention, I know it's big times in terms of the racing and the thoroughbreds, but also in the harness racing. We've got the Inter-Dominion in Victoria, and it's good to hear that SEN Track have signed on as the major sponsor for the Inter-Dominion series later this year. It'll be next month in November that it'll kick off, and then the actual main event at Tabcourt Park, Melton will be in December. So that's a great boon for harness racing and a great boon for SEN Track as well. So just thought I'd throw that out there. That's very exciting, given we don't have too many Inter-Dominions in Melbourne. I think the last one was four years ago, and the 2018 one was the first in 10 years because they obviously get ferried around the different states and indeed different countries as well going into New Zealand, given they're massive into their harness racing there. Let's head to our callers, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Happy to hear your thoughts on a variety of things, including the whole Ross Lyon situation, as I mentioned before. Also the Hawford situation with the terms of reference announced today. Let's head to Alex, who's in South Yarra. How are you, Alex? Oh, I'm so well. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Fire away, mate. Excellent. Oh, I just had a, like an idea for State of Origin AFL football, mm-hmm. um, just to sort of break up the season a bit. Like the older players, the best players of like too many games, you have to manage their load. Why don't we have like a State of Origin of like say under 24s, so they get exposed at like in smaller clubs like North Melbourne, they get exposed to a really big stage. They get to like um, play with players that they may not ordinarily play with, um, experience different standards. You still get the Victoria South Australia rivalry in players that maybe are less injury prone. Yeah, potentially. And I think that was always going to be the sticking point, wasn't it? Injuries, that's what sort of killed State of Origin in a way. Players wouldn't play it because they were worried they were going to get injured and it would wreck their season for their particular club. So. Yeah, I, I don't know whether it will realistically ever happen, though, Alex, whether they bring back State of Origin other than on the occasional basis, whether it's an exhibition basis or elsewhere. But I don't know what your thoughts are on a magic round. Do you think that that's a sustainable thing or you're not as supportive? Oh, absolutely. But the issue with a magic round like the NRL is that um, you that only really Victoria could hold... Um, the number of games in the same place, you know, like the field would get cut up too much to um, to do that. And with the NRL, like the game is shorter. 
So if you wanted to have a magic round for the AFL, like the game would have to be capped at like two hours or something like that. Otherwise, yeah. you know, people might get, um, you know, tired out by watching football, maybe like a Bruce Springsteen concert. <laughs> oh, I think there'd be many people out there saying I'd never get tired out by a Bruce Springsteen concert. Uh, <laughs> I see your point. The thing is... Oh, that, that, me included. <laughs> the, the thing is, though, if you do a shorter-type carnival lightning premiership format, they've tried that in the past as well, and it just hasn't worked. I'm yeah. not suggesting it be like AFLX, but even yeah. just a standard lightning premiership, they did that in 1996. And it just doesn't work. I think people like yeah. the uniqueness of the duration that we already have in AFL football and maybe it makes it unique from other sporting codes but it's an interesting one whether they just yeah. have a series of games within the one oh, they have a state based round. I remember hearing uh, someone reference the fact that back in the 1950s they had a country round. I don't know if you could realistically do that now. They already sort of do that with the practice matches anyway. They have a community type Series, the JLT Community Series. Uh, changes sponsors each year, I suppose. But, yeah, maybe you could have a theme, but I don't know if it presents anything different. Whereas the NRL, I think it has greater significance for them because aside from the Melbourne Storm home games and the occasional exhibition game in Adelaide and Perth, they're really confined to just New South Wales and Queensland, aren't they? Whereas in, a, in the AFL, it's a national competition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they really will have to push to make that a national competition. I don't know if that's where they're at since they've got a, a expansion team that's gone to, like, the heartland of Queensland. Um, and, I like, I really think with, like, all the immigration and stuff in Australia, I'm sure the AFL will be very strong. But, like, you know, in, in the outer suburbs, kids are, like, lots of kids are playing basketball and they're all playing soccer. So, yeah, there's right. competition out there for the kids' time. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The thing is, it's not translating probably in the A-League's case as much as they would like. The NBL's certainly growing, but the the difference that the AFL has, ultimately the point of difference is that it's the best of that sport, whereas with basketball and soccer, the best of that sport is overseas yeah. or football or whatever you want to pronounce it as. Oh. So, yeah. I better head to a hard outbreak. Sorry, yeah, Alex, you. but uh, thanks for calling in, mate. That's okay. Good on you, mate. Sorry no, about thank that. Thank you. Thank you, Tart. Good stuff. Alex from South Yarra, more of your calls. Georgia Volder joined us as well from the Brisbane Heat after this. You're listening to the Sporting Capital. Welcome back. Hope you're enjoying your Thursday night, wherever you may be listening, right across the country on the SEN network. Damian Watson here filling in for Sammy Hargraves. We've talked about a plethora of cricket action already. The Men's T20 World Cup in full swing and also there's the Sheffield Shield. But the WBBL certainly continuing to rumble on. It's been an interesting competition. It's a great product as well. And one of the teams that certainly recovered after a season-opening defeat is the Brisbane Heat. They're always a competitive lineup. They have been pretty much ever since the inception of the competition. They went through that great run for a couple of years where they won back-to-back titles. One of the star young players coming through that lineup is Georgia Vole. Very capable with the bat. She's shown that on a number of occasions and certainly more than competent with the ball as well. And she joins us on the line. Georgia, thanks so much for your time this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me. No worries. Now, just before we get stuck into the cricket, I understand you used to play a lot of rugby league as a junior. What swayed you towards the cricketing sphere? 
Um, it was a bit by default, to be honest. Um, obviously, I was um, playing pretty competitive footy and um, and then cricket came along and um, was doing the same thing with that. So um, it only happened that um, COVID um, disrupted the footy stuff and obviously cricket continued, um, luckily, and um, kind of just ended up going down the cricket path um, that way. Didn't actually end up having to pick. So um, could be a good thing, could be a um, bad thing, but I'm just rolling rolling with it. So, Does it still stick in the back of your mind, though, or do I go back to rugby league? Do I go back to playing footy? Or does it come to a point now where you enjoy your cricket that much that you just continue to roll on? You've been in good form as well. Yeah, I think it's um, probably come to a point where I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Um, Obviously, when I watch some of the footy on TV, it'd be, um, you know, sometimes it's it's <laughs> thinking that, you know, I could could have been there as well. But, um, no, I'm really happy with where I'm at. And, um, yeah, my head's fully with cricket at the moment. Absolutely. Obviously, the WBBL at T20 format. You've been playing a lot of one-day cricket as well for Queensland. Scored 145 earlier this season in the WNCL format. That must have been satisfying to know that not only you could make a start but actually go on and make a big score. Was that a bit of a watershed moment for you? Yeah, it was. I think over the last um, couple of seasons I've um, made a few starts and um, have been pretty disappointed in myself that I haven't been able to kick on. And obviously against New South Wales, big rivalry was, um, you know, nice to kick on and get a big score for Queensland. Now, just in recent games, you made 32 in the season opener against the Sydney Sixers, which I mentioned, an unbeaten 40 against the Melbourne Stars. You didn't have to do much with the bat or indeed anything against the Melbourne Renegades because some of your top order stars were sensational. You'd be batting in the top order a little bit at one day level in the WNCL. In the WBBL, you're around that number four spot. Do you have a preference where you are in the order? Um, not really, to be honest. Obviously, with the one-day stuff, really happy um, opening up and um, trying to get a, a good role on for the team. But obviously, we've got some um, pretty big guns in our team with the heat. So, um, you know, happy to slot in wherever I can. And, um, yeah, it's nice to have a couple opportunities up the um, at number three and um, hopefully can, can continue that over the um, rest of the season. Speaking with George Evol from the Brisbane Heat, part of the WBBL lineup. You mentioned some of those big guns. Another one shares your first name, Georgia Redmayne. Wasn't she sensational against the Melbourne Renegades? I know that JJ Jess Jonathan has probably primarily been the leader, but Georgia Redmayne's had her moments as a captain as well for Queensland. How much have you learnt off her, particularly playing alongside her at times at the top of the order in the one-day format and even just off the field as well, the fact that she combines cricket with her doctoring career as a, as a medical doctor is quite remarkable. Yeah, it is. Obviously, Redders has been around for a long time and, um, you know, one of our um, leaders alongside JJ in, in both the Heat and Queensland stuff. And it's obviously she's been playing well over the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, it's nice to see her do really well, obviously, um, with a strong, strong pre-season um, behind her. And yeah, we're all seeing the rewards of it now, yeah. Who do you think is the most threatening team in the lineup aside from yourself in the WBBL thus far? Obviously, it's a bit of a fickle format. We've spoken about that ad nauseum in the T20 game. And 
it's pretty condensed sort of fixture as well with a number of matches in a close confined position uh, throughout a week or the, the period of six weeks effectively in the season. And having to get yourself up for that is obviously a test as well. So who have you rated in the early stages of the season to be the real top-class team? And I suppose you can't really rest on your laurels against any team, such as the fickle nature of the comp. Yeah, definitely. I don't think um, you can go up against any team thinking that you're going to um, cruise home. Obviously, T20 cricket's a, um, it's a bit of a wild game. Um, but I think, obviously, the Scorchers, um, you know, coming off winning last year, they are obviously um, kept that core group and obviously have some um, world-class players. But I think um, the Sixers also have a, a quality team this year, obviously, looking to... Um, do a bit better than they have in the last two years. And I think they've started the season off, um, you know, really strong as well. So, yeah, I'd probably say those two um, would probably be the um, top two at the moment. Yeah, the Perth Scorchers, of course, in action against the Melbourne Stars with the match to get underway in around 25 minutes' time. Speaking with George Evolve from the Brisbane Heat, have you seen the Kerr sisters go along with Amelia and Jess, obviously, given their... New Zealand background, Amelia was one of the great prodigies of women's cricket over the last few years as well. And I know she took time out of cricket for a period of time. Have you seen them off the field and on the training track as well develop? Uh, Because I know a lot of the internationals, they come in pretty late in the scene, don't they, uh, before the WBBL season? Yeah, um, obviously, Amelia and Jess have been, um, you know, really um, good for us this year. Obviously, Amelia coming back off having a season um you know a a wbbl off but you know it's really nice to see her come back and um basically pick up where she left off and also um you know just coming in for a an uh, international replacement she's definitely taken um you know taken her um best best game for for us in the last three games and um it's a bit of a shame that you know um we have to let her let her go but um yeah you know she's played really well and um, bowled really well for us up front. Uh, Grace Harris, uh, you see her on the TV all the time talking and she's absolutely entertaining. Sometimes with people, they can be like that on the field and they're different in terms of personality off the field. Is she like that all the time? I, lo- I love uh, listening to her on the uh, coverage when she's mic'd up. Yeah, she's absolutely like that um, <laughs> all the time. It's She can get quite annoying. Um, <laughs> but no, that's 100% her. And um, yeah, she's definitely not changing for anyone. <laughs> no, and we wouldn't want her to change. There's no doubt about that. She's one of the great characters of, cr- of cricket, both men's and women's. We're speaking with Georgia Vol for the Brisbane Heat. How have you seen the development of your game? You've still got a long way to go, obviously. Still quite young in the scene, but you've really developed over the last couple of years. And I mentioned before your bowling capabilities. Do you really hone in on the importance of working on both sides of the spectrum? Because it's so hard, given the quality of that Australian women's team, to actually break into the international side going forward, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Obviously, they've been, um, you know, top class for the last um, a long while. So, um, yeah, obviously, it's it's very difficult to break into that team. But, um you know, it's, it is important to, you know, keep going with um, both bat and ball, obviously, um, where you can make a contribution to the team is um, is nice. And obviously, I just, I don't um, bowl too much, but, you know, I just keep doing it just in case they call on me for one over um, or a couple of overs. So I think, yeah, it's just important to, you know, keep both skills going um, because you never know when you're going to be um, called on. 
And just before I let you go, Georgia, the expansion of the WNCL season as well, I mean, it must be a great boon for you domestic players who are on a domestic contract as well because effectively you're working full-time for only eight games a year, particularly if you weren't selected as a domestic player in the WBBL lineup in any type of side. So you all of a sudden have a bit of game time, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Um, it's really good. I think they've been pushing it for um, expansion of the of the um, games to twelve, and it's really nice that um, it's finally come to you know come to light and um, play every team twice rather than playing um, two teams twice, and you know everyone has to play someone else. So yeah, it's it's really nice that um, you know it's come to come to a conclusion that we're playing twelve games, and um, obviously gives a bit more chance to. You know, if there's brain around, it doesn't um, affect your chances to get into the final, obviously, with no semis at all either. So, yeah, it's um, it's really pleasing to see that they've gone to 12 games this year. Now, you played in the Australia A squad, or you were part of the Australia A squad earlier this year when they took on England. A few matches from memory were in Adelaide. A few others were in Canberra as well. How pivotal was that to your development as well, obviously working with players who are not necessarily within your inner sanctum in Queensland, whether it's through the heat or the Queensland fire, to gain experience from other players who come from all different parts of the country? Yeah, it was really exciting, obviously. Um, didn't really expect it, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it was nice to, you know, get around the um, different girls and, and obviously some of them, most of them have played, um, you know, in that before or or the higher, um, the Aussie, Aussie team as well. So, yeah, it was really good to you know, get a good experience um, with those older girls rather than just being, you know, in Queensland. Obviously, I I know no difference. So it's nice to, you know, um, play alongside and learn and pick their brains um, of some of the best best players in the country as well. And last question, if you were called up for a super over situation and you wanted a real duel against a bowler in the WBBL, who would you select? Who do you love playing against in that sense? Um, oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'd probably go a bit of pace on the ball. Um, obviously, if you swing hard enough, it can go to the go to the boundary. I'm not too sure who. Um, you know, everyone everyone's pretty good. So um, yeah, I reckon I'd just go a pacey over a spinner. All right, fair enough, Georgia. Really appreciate your time. Best of luck with the rest of your campaign in the WBBL, and hopefully, the heat can really go deep once again. They always seem to do so. So best of luck. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good on you. Georgia Vol there joining us from the Brisbane Heat. We'll get back to our callers, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Let's head to Rob in Gleb Waverley. How are you, Rob? Hi, Dan, mate. Yeah, not too bad, mate. Great, um, great to hear your voice on, on the airways again. It's a joy to hear you, um, and I really enjoy listening to the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, mate, to bring it to you. What are your thoughts on the Ross Lyons situation? Are you... I don't. I know you're probably not a St Kilda supporter, but if you were, would you be happy to have him back, assuming the reports are correct, or would you be against it? Absolutely against it, Damo. This is a uh, back-to-the-future type arrangement <laughs> from the Saints, and uh, I just don't think it... Uh, I don't, it doesn't really ever work from, from uh, what I've seen, and after what Ross did to the Saints, um, I don't know if the Saints supporters have short memories, but uh, if I was one of them, I'd be, uh, you know, quite disappointed, that's for sure. 
Well, it's an interesting one. There's the other school of thought amongst St Kilda supporters. They're quite divided themselves. They believe effectively that he, that he could bring a hard edge and that's why they brought him across. And he's probably different to the modern style of coaching in many ways. Do you think that could be a positive thing, having a harder edge? Or do you just think all the external stuff surrounding his departure in 2011 and then bringing him back after all this time outweighs that? Absolutely outweighs it. Um, as you've seen with the other clubs, Ross uh, seems to be all about Ross and uh, didn't want to go through any form of an interview process for other clubs. And then the Saints have uh, seemed to have just folded and said, oh, we have no other ideas. We'll see if Ross is interested. And when he indicated that he was, um, potentially they said, all right, Brett Ratton, that's enough for you. Now, you're a Carlton supporter, Rob. Do you feel an element of sympathy for Brett Ratton, not only with That's the way... That's my read on it anyway. ...with the way he departed from Carlton in particular and then similar sort of circumstances in a way in terms of misfortune at St Kilda, do you feel an element of sympathy for Rats? It... <laughs> from Carlton to make way for Mick Malthouse, I think it was at the time, and now... Same again for Ross Lyon in an established coach. And um, Ross Lyon, I don't know, the, I don't know if it, you, know, you know the old saying, uh, Damo, a week's a long time in footy. He hasn't coached or been in the coaching caper for quite some time. Uh, and now you look at all the good coaches coming in, like your Craig McRae's, they've been, you know, um, playing their trade uh, as an assistant for years. And he thinks he can just come out of the media and walk straight back in. I think it just oozes a bit of arrogance. And um, unfortunately for Ross, for the Saints to succeed, he's going to have to uh, win a flag. Like, otherwise he's failed. And I don't know where you sort of draw the line on that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. This is the thing. If he ends up winning a flag at St Kilda, everyone will say, oh, it was a masterstroke of genius by the St Kilda board. But then I think regardless of that, with the way it was handled, regardless of whatever result in shoes, it's probably fair to say that I think all parties would agree in a way, if you look back on it objectively, they could have handled the whole thing a lot better. Absolutely, absolutely. And particularly when, um, you know, Ratton, the senior coach, was involved in recruiting players, um, going to the draft and so on just days before he was uh, shown the, the door. So... Um, I suppose that's part of business and it's a, it's a brutal game in, in the AFL, very cutthroat. Well, that's it. Oh, I still think he's a he's a good operator, Ross Lyon, in terms of his coaching capability. They wouldn't be sounding out if he wasn't. I think it's just the way the club has handled it. I'm not being critical of Ross necessarily. But, Rob, appreciate your call once again, mate. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Damo. Good Have stuff. a good night. And thanks for holding on as well. Good on you, Rob. Rob from Glen Waverley there. Let's head to Greg, who's in Burlbark, who wants to rebut that caller. How are you, Greg? Yeah, very good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Fire away in your defence of Ross Lyon. Do you, do, you, do you really want me to fire, mate? Because I've been listening to this for a few days, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, well, are the St Kilda supporters that scared of success? Are they that petrified that they may actually play finals and they may actually win a final that they don't want Ross Lyon? Because the bloke Ooze's success, he's got the, clearly he's got the best coaching record of any St Kilda coach, including Gabby Jones. Now, everyone said, oh, but he left the club in disarray. No, he didn't. The club is in disarray. 
the board members have got no bloody idea. Look what they've just done to Brett Ratton. I personally know Brett. I went to his son's funeral. Mm. I've known him ever since we were kids growing up in the Yarra Valley. He's a fine man. He's a great man, and he's just what they need. But are they that scared of, of playing finals? Are they that scared that they may actually see some success? But that do you... they don't want Ross Lyon back? Because he gets teams up. Whether you love him or hate him, he gets teams up. Would you make the argument that Ratton could have achieved the same thing? Well, he was looking very, very good um, post, uh, sorry, pre-buy. Uh, he was looking very, very good. Um, his team lost its way, but I still don't reckon... It's like David Noble... North Melbourne were in a rebuilding stage and they cut his head off within two years. Like, not even giving a, a coach two years is, is just insane. It's showing no faith whatsoever in the man you've appointed. Yeah, and we... <laughs> you've, you've got to let him, you've got to let him run. You've got to let him have a go because one of the finest coaches or managers or whatever in the history of the world, Sir Alex Ferguson, didn't win anything for seven years. Mm. You've got to give him a go, mate. You've got to give... You've got to... You know, two years is nothing. You don't even build a club after two years. That's a thing. You're getting your list sorted out. We're trigger-happy, I think, as uh, industry in some respects. I mean, you look at... I think you Ernie know, Merrick... Like, it's the... just, it frustrates me because I'm, I'm not even a St Kilda supporter, mate. But supporter, but I, I just... Yeah. Sorry, Ernie Merrick uh, made the point, obviously, earlier today just in relation to the fact that they gave Bob a Thompson a long time before he achieved success at Geelong. It was around about seven years, and you probably say the same about Damien Hardwick as well. You've got to have that stability behind you and a little bit of investment for the board behind a coach rather than just giving them a couple of years. So yeah, I think that was a point that was made by Ernie Merrick as well on the Jared Waitley's program earlier today. We seem to have a few troubles with the phone line, Greg, but uh, thanks very much for your call, mate. I really appreciate you giving you giving that other perspective as well. Thanks for having me on, mate. Good night. Good on you, Greg. Greg from Muralbark there. We'll take a break. Back with more of your calls after this. Teo Palazzieri not too far away as well to talk all things A-League men's action. You're listening to the Sporting Capital. Don't forget you can text him via the text machine on 0433981116. All thanks to Temper Mattresses. Welcome back. Hope you're enjoying the program on this Thursday night. If you want to text in via the Temper text machine, get your unique bed match profile and find the right bed for you via 40 Winks as well. Serious about sleep. 0433981116. When Lyon took over, says Anonymous, at St Kilda, they had Revolt, Cozzy and Sam Fisher at the age of 23, Del Santo and Montagna at 22, Luke Ball at the age of 21, Jason Graham at 21, Goddard and Gilbert, also in their early 20s, Chuck in Hayes, Hamill, Milne and the G-Train at their peak. It was a stacked list. This list is miles off it. So that's an interesting point that you make in terms of the comparisons to when Ross took over at the beginning of 07 at the end of the Grant Thomas era. It's not going to be the same inherent list in 2022 in terms of quality. That's probably right. 
Just in regards to the NBL, the South East Melbourne Phoenix regaining a bit of form. They defeated the New Zealand Breakers 99-77. to 77. Kyle Adnam with 17 points, the local from the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne from that Kilsyth region starring in his 25 minutes there on the court. Jarrell Brantley scored 17 points with four rebounds and one assist for the New Zealand Breakers. And presently, Melbourne United leading Cairns Taipan 16-15 to 15 early on in that contest. So it'll be interesting to see how Melbourne United perform because the Cairns Taipan have been in pretty good form in recent times. And just in terms of the T20 Men's World Cup, the UAE won for 77 off 13 overs against Namibia. Their run rate just hovering at around 6 and over around a runner ball at this point in time. Wazim 42 off 34 at the crease. Rizwan 10 off 12. They won the toss and elected to bat down there at Geelong. You can catch all of that action on the SEN app and the SEM Fanatic app as well where we cover every game of the Men's T20 World Cup in Australia. Up next, Teo Palazzari to join us to discuss all things A-League and the men's competition. Might touch on the women's as well. And at 8.30 Eastern Daylight Time, we're going to chat with Rick Mild about sporting collectibles as well. That's all coming your way on the Sporting Capital on this Thursday night. Welcome back. Hope you're enjoying your Thursday night. This is the Sporting Capital. Damian Watson here filling in for Sam Hargraves. I'll keep you up to date with what's happening in the live sporting action. Currently drinks the UAE 1 for 89 after 14 overs against Namibia in the T20 World Cup. The men's T20 World Cup down at Geelong and also in the NBL at the moment. Melbourne United establishing a bit of a buffer early in the second. They lead the Cairns Taipans 21 to 15, and the Taipans have been in good form in recent times. We're also approaching round three of the A-League men's season, and with the weekend on the horizon, there's certainly a lot to look forward to. There appears to be already a bit of a contrast compared to last season, although it's still early days. We've got three undefeated teams, and the reigning champs, Western United, are 0-2. Two losses to kickstart the season. They have an important game against MacArthur FC at Amy Park tomorrow night. We've also got the Melbourne Derby to look forward to on Saturday night, which is a bit of a cultural tradition amongst some of the real hardened A-League supporters out there, particularly in Melbourne. Joining us on the line is one of the most respected A-League commentators, Teo Palazzieri, who's part of the coverage for Channel 10 and Paramount+. Plus. Thanks again for your time, Teo. A pleasure, Damo. Great to be on. Fantastic to have you. Firstly, Teo, after the opening couple of weeks of the season, does it feel like a more settled and stable atmosphere in the competition, the men's competition in particular, permeating around? Because the league was really adversely impacted by COVID over the last couple of seasons, mainly due to last-minute schedule changes. So there's a bit more stability around the air at the moment? I mean, stability in terms of when the games are on, yes. But as you just alluded to, the the defending champions at the bottom of the league in two losses from two. So... It's almost like the, the competition is immediately compelling, and I I think that you know the uh, more than a hundred games rescheduled last season, thankfully, mercifully, is a thing of the past, and we can really get to focusing on the plot lines that are developing on the field through the course of the year. And speaking of those plot lines, Western United can they turn things around tomorrow night against Macarthur FC, and importantly, can they nullify the influence of Daniel Arzani? a great question because they lost one of their import signings, Tongo Dumbia, to a medium-term 
hamstring injury. You suspect he'll be out until after the World Cup break now. So even though he hadn't started the first couple of games, he's a midfield reinforcement and a player that had been signed to provide physical presence. And it's the one thing that Western United have perhaps missed in their first two games, particularly against Sydney last weekend, where normally a a midfield that was uh, accomplished at stifling the game allowed Sydney FC to to play through them in transition quite comfortably. So MacArthur's probably not the team they want to see from a tactical point of view, mainly because neither team likes possession of the ball. They like to let the other team have the ball and hit them on the counter-attack. So when you have two teams that don't want the ball, whoever has more possession is going to be doing it against their will. And I suspect that MacArthur's individual players at the moment are just in better form. And you mentioned Daniel Arzani there, and rightly so, because he was man of the match against Adelaide last Sunday. And the World Cup hype around him is building. He seems very level-headed and composed whenever he gives an interview. And there's a really good feeling on the field around this MacArthur team. Yeah, absolutely. The Western Sydney Wanderers, they've had a dream start to the season and they host the Brisbane Raw this weekend. I must admit, though, based on their Australia Cup playoff back in May, if you match them up one-on-one, the Raw, I think, do have the capability and now to defeat this side, the Wanderers. Do you think they could cause a bit of an upset? Because it's still early days. I mean, a lot has happened at Brisbane Raw since winning that game. They've had... They've had the Corey Brown drama with the PFA and and the lawyers getting involved. Just this week, they've had the acrimony around closing their youth academy. And there's just just never a good headline coming out of the Brisbane Raw. (laughs) I mean, at the moment, it it really feels as though, you know, they're doing everything they possibly can to make the diehards drop off. It makes no sense. I, I think that they are... It's hard to believe that there might be clubs and going worse on the field than them at the moment because their performance against Melbourne City might have trumped all the off-field stuff as the most concerning thing of the lot. Look, Western, Western Sydney Wanderers weren't great against Melbourne Victory. They did win, but they only had the two shots on target. Correct. And they came in quick succession because uh, it was the goal scorer, of Michelle, who shot the first one into the keeper, had the rebound come back to him and then scored with the second, and that was it. So, again, Brisbane Raw will probably have more possession in this game and will probably get the chance to dictate terms. But will they be disciplined enough not to be beaten on the counter-attack by Wanderers I sincerely doubt it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We're speaking with Teo Palazzieri, Channel 10 and Paramount Plus commentator as part of the A-League competition, men's and women's. Wellington Phoenix, they head to the Hunter Valley to take on Newcastle, who defeated Perth in their only game. But to me, this is just my point of view, both sides are still somewhat of an unknown quantity as to what they can produce this season. How do you see this match playing out? Look, I, I like Wellington more, mainly because Newcastle weren't great in in their win uh, last weekend. Uh, Maybe a little bit lucky to beat Perth right at the end. Maybe they deserved to win because of the controversial decision to give a penalty um, to Perth in that game. But I I think that the the Phoenix probably have the ability to control the middle of the park in this match with with Stephen Ogarkovic in there. Um, I don't think he put a foot wrong in the game against um, Central Coast, something like 58 completed passes out of 61. And then Clayton Lewis in there for support as well. And Ben Wayne in great form in the forward line. And they do travel to Newcastle quite well. It's a bogey venue for some teams, but not for Wellington. So as much as the Jets got a win while not playing well in round one, I do think the Wellington Phoenix, if there's going to be a winner, will be the ones that win this game. Yeah, I agree. I wasn't absolutely sold on Newcastle based on their performance against Perth. Now, I guess 
the main headline act for a lot of people is the Melbourne Derby this weekend. You've lived in Melbourne. You're now based in Sydney. In your view, which Derby has a bigger build-up media-wise and also spectacle amongst the fans in the A-League, the Melbourne or Sydney Derby? Well, I do think that the Melbourne one has a bigger build-up, but the Sydney one has two better balanced fan bases. Yeah, the, the Melbourne derby, at least, it's the one game where you can guarantee that the Melbourne City fans will be out in force and sort of <laughs> do their best to balance the crowd. But Victory have got their swagger back off the field and they're getting it back on the field as well. So generally, you can expect that Victory will dominate the numbers, whereas the Sydney derby, it is probably a better one just because the fan bases are more balanced in terms of the crowd numbers. All the other elements and aspects of it, I do think the Melbourne Derby is better because who's on top tends to swing back and forth, whereas Sydney FC have been so dominant in the Sydney Derby for the most part over the last six or seven years. Uh, On the game itself, I I do think Melbourne City are, are looking pretty irresistible at the moment. But the question for me is, what's going to happen with Marco Tilio? Because... As much as Melbourne City's own fans love the fact that their team is winning, I think all the neutrals are watching and all the Socceroos fans are watching and they're asking, where's Marco Tilio? Why isn't he playing? And I'm very much in the same camp. I want an exciting, talented young player to play as many minutes as possible. The problem is he has Andrew Naboot and Matthew Leckie in very good form and blocking his path. And, and I sadly don't think he'll be starting this game because Patrick Kisnorbo isn't going to disrupt a winning combination. Yeah, you mentioned Tilio. I still remember him scoring a goal along with Kolakowski from memory in a semi-final last year against MacArthur FC. The Melbourne Derby itself, you mentioned some names there, but the influence of J.B. McLaren is obviously accentuated by his goal-scoring capacity. His now, he's a name that transcends the competition. How did victory curtail his influence? Uh, very good question, because centre-back has been probably the biggest issue for Melbourne victory whether it was getting knocked out of the cup with George Timotheu scoring that own goal against Western United or the way that they gave up the goal to Western Sydney Wanderers last week. Without Matthew Speranovic there, uh, Timotheu does seem like the weak link in the team. Uh, Kadete has made only a, a sort of reasonable start to his career and Lee Broxham, kind of the, the Mr. Fixer who gets thrown into right back, into centre back, wherever he needs to go. And they're not providing the protection to Paul Izzo that he really needs. So... Uh, How do victory stop Jamie McLaren? I'm not sure they do, Damon. I think that uh, he's going to loom large over this fixture and uh, victory's centre-back pairing uh, and just their defence in general is their weak link at the moment. So I I suppose the good thing is that might bode for a shootout because victory's only option might be to attack and uh, go for one more goal in the other direction. You wouldn't necessarily mind seeing that frame of mind in the match itself. And do you think you are subscribing to the theory in sport when there's a big rivalry at play that the positions of form on the table doesn't necessarily come to much fruition in the encounter because of the sheer rivalry? Well, I I think in the case of a Melbourne derby, it very much does apply to Melbourne City because just as a club, I mentioned off the field that it is the one game where you can guarantee that their fan base will, will swell in numbers. They, they have a different feel about them when, it, when it's a derby. You know, when it's Newcastle at home or when Wellington Phoenix come to town, it, it's not the same club. When it's derby week, that's when you see Melbourne City at their best. And the thing is, they don't want to throw out the form line because they're playing so, so well in, this, in respect of at least getting really good results for the last two seasons and the beginning of this one. So why would they want to throw the form book out the window when it comes to derby week? 
Yeah, exactly right. Teo Palazzieri joining us on the line. Sydney FC, they're looking to entrench themselves in the top four. They clash with Adelaide United. Given the Sky Blues have scored the most goals, I think, out of any team this season, do you think Adelaide United's defence have the capacity to step up to that type of pressure? Gee, well, they weren't, they weren't very impressive across more or less every line against MacArthur last weekend. I, I sat down to this game expecting it to be Dwight York and MacArthur's first really big test, and Adelaide laid a bit of an egg against them. And the thing about Adelaide is they were painfully predictable. They sprung in something like 40-odd crosses in round one, similar sort of number in round two. You know it's going wide. You know Craig Goodwin, and well, before he got it, got hurt, Ben Halloran. Uh, I assume Halloran is going to play, but you just know those wingers are going to be cross-spamming into the box all game, and, and it makes them somewhat you know, predictable to defend against, and Sydney FC will probably know what's coming. And that air of predictability to Adelaide United, they still were able to grab late goals and get fortunate results last season. Maybe they're regressing to the mean this campaign. So I think Sydney FC, their individuals, Robert Mack, Joe Lolly, they showed us what they could do against Western United. Is the team as a unit as cohesive as they would like to be? I'm not sure that Luke Bratton is the centrepiece of a midfield that's going to win the championship. But you look at how poorly Adelaide central midfielders played against MacArthur last week. Luke Bratton isn't going to have anywhere near as many troubles. So I suspect that even if he is the player that Sydney FC wanted with the ball at his feet, uh, anchoring that midfield, he's going to be able to distribute it out to Mack and Lolly on the wings. And then it's good luck to those fullbacks for Adelaide United trying to contain them because those two are excellent individual players. Yeah, that's right. And just in relation to the clash between the Central Coast Mariners against Perth Glory, is it a case of how far in the way of the Mariners? Because Perth have been disappointing so far this season, in my view. I mean, they can be disappointing, but they, they are disappointing more so because they've found ways to lose from positions where they sure. could have got a draw or, or could have even against Newcastle turned the game around completely and got the win. Gee, it's it's frustrating with Perth as well. This is a, a team that finds new and different ways to under-deliver uh, in the A-League men's era, having been that great NSL team right yes. at the end of that competition. How far Central Coast is an interesting one because I thought it was how far Central Coast when they took the lead against Wellington Phoenix last weekend, and then they subbed off Jason Cummings and I think robbed themselves of a lot of their momentum. I, I think that Central Coast team are still gelling as a unit with some of the new signings. And I think without Cummings on the field, their goal threat goes down significantly. So given that Cummings has had a lot of criticism of his conditioning and and maybe hasn't returned for the start of the A-League season in tip-top shape, which is confounding given that he should be basically uh, making uh, an all-or-nothing run for the World Cup squad, if he is able to last 90 minutes, I do think Central Coast will win. But if they have to sub him off because he can't run out the game, then that does leave the door ajar for Perth to maybe grab their first point of the season. All right. Now, whenever I search A-League men's in Google, the first thing in the last week that comes up is crowds. And that's been a talking point. It's going to be a talking point ahead of this week as to see how many people will turn up for the derby, how many people will turn up tomorrow night when Western United take to the pitch, obviously, in their must-win clash. And I know Simon Hill was pretty defensive of the A-League as a competition itself, saying that the NRL should probably get more scrutiny than the A-League, considering the amount of mainstream coverage that the NRL gets, and their crowds are probably not up to mustard either when you look at the coverage that is compared upon between the two codes. Uh, what's your view on it? Do you think there's too much emphasis on crowds? Do you think it could still be an improvement factor that the A-League should look at, considering what was the average attendance, particularly to victory games 10 or so years ago? What camp do you sit in? Do you sit in a bit of both? 
Oh, no, I think the scrutiny is, is absolutely warranted because it's the clubs themselves that need to do the work to engage their communities and their fan bases to come back. The, the head office can only do so much in this situation. They can issue whatever edicts they like to their clubs, but ultimately it's the clubs who have to bring people through the gate. And I think those averages are going to be dragged up by the good teams you know, that have had historically strong fan bases, Wanderers, Sydney FC, Melbourne Victory, dragging up the overall average. We know that when the Jets are good, they turn out. We know that when the Mariners are good, they turn out. Same goes for Adelaide, who are, are always consistent and reliable, but it's Brisbane Raw, it's the two expansion teams, MacArthur and Western United, it's Perth Glory. They're the problem children. They are the problem children of the A-League men's at the moment, and, and it's left a understandably sour taste in the mouth. Oh, let's not forget, the unique selling point of the A-League is the fan atmosphere that's created. The NRL is never going to have that. It's a made-for-TV sport. So, uh, you know, Simon's lived in Sydney a lot longer than me, so maybe he's more qualified to make that comparison because, I'll be honest with you, Damo, I still listen to a lot of SEN podcasts. I don't exactly consume the NRL media up here. Um, so I, <laughs> I think that, uh, I, I think that you know, the unique selling point of the A-League men's is the atmosphere. Melbourne Victory are back. You see the, the spectacle that they created last week. That is a magnet to bring other fans through the gate. You know, you've got a young family. You're not going to go stand with them, but you're going to sit on the wings and you're going to watch that just as much as you're going to watch the game. Sydney FC have got this new stadium, which is fantastic. And having one last week, they'll be hoping for a good crowd. And you know what? MacArthur, Dwight York winning a trophy. They're trying to build something. The crowds are pretty underwhelming. And Western Sydney Wanderers are probably the big one because they have their new stadium and the fans haven't come back yet. So I'm hoping that winning will be the thing that brings them back through the gate, even if they're winning in not the most aesthetically pleasing way. But you know what? When you get on a winning streak, sometimes it doesn't matter. Well, I think with Western Sydney, we know the crowds are there if they can play an, an entertaining brand of football and they're successful. We saw that in 2014. I know there's a bit of marketing that goes along with that. But at the same time, and I guess that goes to the question I was going to ask you about Western United, where I thought, oh, are the crowd's going to be going to well, are they going to increase conducive upon when they finally deliberate upon a stadium that they're going to be situated in and they build that stadium etc or is there more to it to develop a fan base regardless of that stability when it comes to their home no no i, I think i think the stadium is in the one that's currently being built the 5000 yeah. seater i think that will actually have a great effect in that it's going to look full it's going to sound like a, a better atmosphere Yes, it's, it's you know, probably a bit smaller than what they were aspiring to when they first came right. in, but it'll suit their needs in the short term. And then are they going to start building the main stadium? Well, I hope they do. I hope they deliver what they promise, and they should be held to that promise, absolutely. But I actually think their capacity to grow is, is in evidence if they can build the 5,000-seater stadium and fill that every week starting next season. So I'm hoping that's what they do. I, I you know, I, I recognise the great potential of the Western suburbs and that growth corridor. I just think they came in a bit too early. It's a great idea. It's just been executed. You know, what they came in 29... Or the licence was awarded in 2018. They've come in 2019. And then, yes, the pandemic set them back. But it was probably a decision that came 10 years ahead of its time. So you can only hope that the short-term pain will eventually pay off with some long-term gain. And you know what? At least they 
spend money on their staff, they spend money on their coaches and football department, they spend money on their international players and they fill their salary cap and they're taking their women's team very seriously as well. So if on the field is anything to go by, hopefully the off-field will step up to match it. We're just going to have to be a bit more patient with it. And you know what, Damo? That's about as nice as I've ever been about the situation Western United to put the rest of the league in because... At least I'm starting to see the green shoots. Even if you'd asked me six months ago, I may have been far more critical. And there is population growth potentially on the horizon there as well, given housing affordability. Just one last one before I let you go. We appreciate your time. Teo Palazzieri joining us from Channel 10 and Paramount+. Plus. The A-League women's season starts pretty much a month from now. And I know you've done a lot of work in the last few years. We're building up towards a home World Cup campaign. How do you see the depth of the competition, particularly in the long term as well, beyond this World Cup and, and what you've seen and what we're leading up to for this season? Damo, the, uh, the borders are back open. COVID's over and most teams are going to have four foreigners again. We just saw Western United announce American World Cup winner Jess McDonald as their guest marquee. And there's going to be more foreign signings coming during the course of the week. So, yes, a lot of Australians have left overseas, but the actual standard and quality of the league is going to be as good as it's been in about three or four years this summer. And I can tell you that there are some seriously exciting off-the-field revelations coming in a broadcast space, be it new female play-by-play commentators, be it the Goal Rush show, which has been announced for Saturday afternoons with the concurrent games, I feel as though this is going to be an innovative season off the field and it's going to be a, a really good standard of competition on the field and it's also going to be the best opportunity, I think, for the viewers and the fans to interact with the league and also to get to know the personalities around the competition. So only a month to go. It can't go quick enough for me, mate, because I do think it's going to be a really good season. Fantastic. And we look forward to hearing your voice as well, Teo, as we already have uh, much of the last few years. Appreciate your time and thanks again. Anytime, Damo. A pleasure. Good stuff. Teo Pelizzieri joining us, part of the Channel 10 and Paramount Plus A-League men's and women's commentary team. We'll take a break. Back with your calls after this on the Sporting Capital. Welcome back. Thursday night action on the Sporting Capital. Just a live update as well in regards to the MBL. The match between Melbourne United and Cairns Taipans has reached half-time. Melbourne United in the lead 43-37 to 37 after the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix claimed a bit of a surprise victory over the New Zealand Breakers considering how big the margin was as well. 99-77. to 77. The Breakers were coming in looking for their fourth consecutive victory. So they go down to the Phoenix there. Welcome to Text In with thanks to 40 Wigs. Get your unique bed match profile and find the right bed for you. 40 weeks, serious about sleep. And also for temper, consumer's choice winner, temper mattresses, pillows and adjustable bases conforms to the exact shape of your body. You can call it as well, one 736 Let's head to John, who's on the road to talk about the A-League crowds. How are you, John? Yeah, very well. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, look, um, just in relation to the crowds, and, and obviously if you compare them to the old NSL crowds, um, it leaves a lot to be desired. But the last NSL game that I attended was, was a couple of decades ago, and there were it was between uh, South Melbourne, uh, South Melbourne versus Heidelberg, yeah. and there were 36,000 people there, and that was just a home and away game. Now, a lot of those fans uh, did jump off um, football. Now, when Melbourne Victory came back in and there was a bit of excitement because a lot of the fans were starved of the round ball game, a lot of people jumped on. And there was a bit of excitement. 
But then later on, when there was a glimpse of hope that perhaps some of these uh, NPL clubs, as it's called now, were a chance to perhaps, um, you know, come up to the big league through yeah. a second division, um, a lot of people did jump off. And to be quite honest, I was one of them. I know many, many people. And I was, I was present in a conversation of some big boys who were talking about that very thing while a lot of the decisions were being made. And Melbourne Victory did not want South Melbourne to come in at that time because it would take away half their fans. And the same is with Melbourne City. There is a lot of cross-pollinisation and people that are following Melbourne Victory and Melbourne City that if South Melbourne or some of the other clubs came back in, they would actually go back to the clubs that they initially mm. voted for. And, and, and that surely is understandable. So if they want big crowds, bring in the original clubs and educate the people on how to behave rather than just shutting everyone out. Yeah, I think it was probably more of a business decision, wasn't it? When the A-League first came in, they wanted to get away from the old NSL days in terms of the identity of the clubs. And, and Ford, you've got to remember, I suppose the Melbourne Victory side did establish big crowds in the early days. The problem is it has dropped off if you look at it holistically. I mean, they were filling up Marvel Stadium a lot of the time, even for home and away matches. Uh, but look, I see your point of view. There's always going to be that tie, and there still is at MPL level with your local club and, and the atmosphere that the NSL teams created. It's just one of those things where I guess elements of time evolve and elements of the way sport is marketed has evolved as well. And I think that really is what it came down to. It was a business decision, wasn't it, to move away from that? And maybe that's still permeating today. Would you be supportive? You mentioned before about a potential relegation-type situation. We know how popular the FFA Cup and the Australia Cup has been to a certain extent, given they are ostensibly local competitions with a few of the elite sides and the A-League brought in. Uh, Would you be supportive of a relegation type, because that's been canvassed before amongst listeners, supportive of a relegation type situation where those teams can have the opportunity to come back and at the end of the day, Melbourne Victory as administrators have to look. It's a challenge for them to hold on to that fan base, but there's every right for South Melbourne if they were to come in and earn their way into the main competition to have their own fan base, bring some of the old ones back and Melbourne Victory could be a little bit more self-reliant and build some new fans. Yeah, well, the, the idea, that is the idea of actually creating the second tier. There is talk now that in 2000, and well, it was supposed to be 2023, but it doesn't look like it. 2024 was going to be a year of promotion and relegation. And, and in relation to the business decision that was made by them then, perhaps it was. It wasn't the right one. It was definitely the wrong one. And they can undo that and fix it. Because if you look at ethnicity amongst clubs, every country with a round ball game is actually popular. There's about three or four teams that were initially um, uh, started by by ethnic. You look at the French League, you know, Olympic and, uh, and some of the Corinthians. I mean, there are many, many leagues. And they've spent a lot of time educating their fans on, on behaving... Um, like sports people and leaving the ethnic side of it out. So rather than, you know, shutting out most of the round ball supporters that are that really exist, but the quality of football is ordinary, even at NPL level. I mean, young guys don't get a chance to play. The, they play to win. There's no development, guys. And, and unless it becomes really, really serious where some of the bigger NPL clubs have actually got a chance to elevate themselves 
and become and get to the big it's not going to change so i think they need to look at that and the bigger picture and and reverse some of those decisions that they made back then and correct it and come back into educating your fans to behave like they should if you were going to put a percentage on it how likely would that occur realistically that, that, that it would well I really, I don't have a lot of confidence in in the administration of the round ball game because they just haven't been able to get it right for a long time. But that was look, NSL I, I days know. as well. I mean, I, yeah, they were NSL days, but but at the, in this point, in this day and age, at A League level, we should be professional enough to actually put in, you know, have a plan, five, ten year plan, you know, perhaps get the big clubs together. Uh, and there are some smaller NSL clubs of those days that have actually grown ever since. And I look at Preston these days, and, and I don't have no allegiance to Preston. They've just been promoted to MPL 2, and they averaged about 10,000 fans a game last year. And, and, and these things are not being reported. The last, the last game that Preston played, and we're talking an NPL 2, they got 10,000, I think it was 11,000 people at their game. More than Man City. I mean, the A-League doesn't get that. Yeah. So, anyway, I just think that the A-League are missing out big time. We're missing out as fans. Um, you know, we want to see good football. Um, but, you know, the best we can hope for as, as football fans here these days is getting a guy in his mid to late 30s who's looking at retiring and making Australia his home and, you, you know, to see a quality football player. Um, and unless it changes, and it needs to change in a drastic way, um, you know, football is going to die. Um, well, oh. it, it, I consider it already... Actually, well, in that way, we've got, we've got a dozen clubs at A-League level, and only two or three can actually pay their bills. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Look, Mel, I think there's still hope for clubs like I think Melbourne City can develop more of a fan base. It's going to take time, but it's an interesting one because a lot of those NSL clubs did have a lot of tradition, uh, and I can understand bringing in new traditions, but it's hard to compete with that element of tradition. John, appreciate your call, mate, but thanks very much for ringing in. Cheers, thank you. Good on you, John. John on the road there. We'll take a break. Rick Milner join us now. Anyone with collectible items out there, sporting collectible items who want their items valued, this is the time for you. Text in 0433-981116. Rick Millen, of course, sporting collectible specialist. He's been on this station for many years uh, with many cameos and guest spots and other stations around the country as well. So we've got a bit of a racing feed tonight, given it is that time of year. But happy for any sporting collectible item, if you want it to be valued, Rick Milne is the brains behind any valuation. So 0433-981116 on the temper text machine. We'll take a break. Back with that and more after this. And a big welcome back to the Sporting Capital. Damian Watson with you here, filling in for Sam Hargraves. one 736 736 to ring in. You can text it as well via the temper text machine and 40 Wings text machine as well, 0433-981116. Mike, don't worry, I'll highlight the MLB. The reason why I don't highlight it as much at this time of night is because it's usually held in the morning, our time. But, of course, the Houston Astros defeated the New York Yankees 
four home runs to two. Now, these two were at it in the playoffs going back to 2019. I remember being in New York for that particular encounter just before the World Series, and the Astros continued on. They defeated the Yankees. I wonder if history will repeat itself here in 2022. The Padres, of course, defeated the Philadelphia Phillies, who have been in pretty good form. So the series is tied at one all there. The San Diego Padres, eight home runs to five over Philadelphia. So... We'll keep you up to date with what's happening after the Phillies, of course, won the first game in that little series, two home runs to none. So a lot happening in the MLB, but primarily because it's in the morning, Mike. That's why I don't cover it as much during the evening. Now, we've got already a couple of text messages coming in, and feel free to send them in, 0433981116. If you have any sporting collectible items that you want valued, roughly, Feel free to send them in. We've got a couple already, as I mentioned, as we welcome in Rick Milne, the sporting collectible specialist. He's been on this station many times before. How are you, Rick? Oh, Damien, couldn't be better. Fantastic. Now, it is that type of year when we get stuck into the horse racing, and there's plenty of history and tradition surrounding horse racing in this country, particularly when it comes to collectible items. Before we get to some of these text messages, what are some of the more valuable you have in store? Well... I did have, but ended up selling, uh, the 1930 um, Melbourne Cup race book, which was a fail lapse. Yes. Big win. And it's the plainest looking thing you've ever seen in your life. It's just like a brown cover and doesn't look, doesn't look like much at all. But that, in my opinion, is probably about the best single item that relates that I've had in my, through my, uh, come through my hands. And it's something pretty special. What you've got to look out for, and I get a lot of fun calls about one that people think they've got a fail app race book. It was actually the one that they used in the movie, and it's in colour, and it doesn't show actually, it doesn't show, all it does is sort of uh, inside it mentions fail apps record, you know, how many races uh, he won and so forth. That's all. So be very careful about that one. That's a, that's a common one. That turns up a lot. But the original is um, just a sort of a brownie, rather dun colour cover and that's a bit of a ripper fantastic and i noticed you got a few horse racing cards as well it's almost a similar style to the old footy cards they are and they were and uh, they i suppose the, the footy ones and the racing ones are, are about the most popular footy would be number one for sure but racing definitely is number two and um yeah i've got some from about 1912 which were jockeys and it's a funny thing because they show them with the horses kind of um, whited out, so you actually, they sort of they look like they're floating on air, yeah, pretty funny-looking things. But the other ones are great. They're Melbourne Cup winners, and uh, they're from the days of Archer, 1962, which is the first... Uh, sorry, 1862, the very first one, won it again the following year. And uh, they go up to about 1912, 1915. That's a lovely set of cards, and that's strictly for the Melbourne Cup. So that's pretty spectacular. As far as... Um, collectible races go uh, I would rate them this way in in uh, Queensland definitely the Stradbroke in Sydney the Doncaster in Melbourne it's it's Melbourne Cup and Cox Plate are very similar in terms of collectability and if you've got either of those or even Derby Day is a, is a very collectible race book as well so Melbourne seems to have issued the most race books or it appears that they they turn up much more frequently and i I do work in the other states as well but they don't turn up as often as the melbourne ones do it and the melbourne ones some of the earlier ones are pretty spectacular 
Just in terms of cards, if someone has an uh, old horse racing card lying around, whether it's in their parents' collectible tin or something like that, what would they be roughly worth, let's say, around that mark that you were mentioning, the 1920s, 30s, or even further back? Not a fortune, surprisingly. I've, um, I've put my collection together, I think, of just about all of the cigarette cards, as far as I can tell, or very close to it, uh, except for a, a, a rather rare set from South Australia. But uh, the uh, the others, are usually in the range of about up to about five or six, maybe eight dollars a piece. Uh, but there are a lot of them, and uh, I've got I don't know twenty sets, maybe all told. But uh, certainly less than um, than the footy cards. But there are, as I said, there are plenty of items that relate to racing that are uh, uh, one of the one of my very favourites. Um, is a biscuit tin. It was put out by a company called um, Peak Freen. And if you can... Uh, I've actually got a... I sent you a picture of it. It's got, if you can imagine this, a barrel, which is where the uh, biscuits are, and a kind of an outer barrel as well. And there's a little um, window in the outer barrel, and you can spin the inside <laughs> one and rate horses race around. Now, it's funny because I mentioned this once when I talked to Kevin Bartlett and he said he can remember as a young young boy putting, not money, but like matches on which horse would win because there are six all together on this little barrel that spins around. It's a cracker. And um, to find that in very good condition is quite hard because it was a lot of red and people left them in the sun and, of course, the worst thing you can possibly do, um, the red turns pink. That's the first colour to disappear. So if you've got any kind of uh, racing memorabilia, perhaps framed, always make sure you frame it, that you put it in, in a, a darker part of the house, like a, a passageway or somewhere. Don't ever put it near direct light or even uh, a sunny room because the colour will go out pretty quickly. Yeah, I've had a look at the uh, biscuit tin. It's in colour as well, which, I don't know, was that rare for that particular era to have that element of detail in the artwork in particular? Yes, it was. And as I said, too often I'll see that tin, uh, it's been left in the wrong part of the house and it and it loses its red. The red is the colour that always disappears first. This is a good, strong red one, as you can see. I, I, I should explain, by the way, to, to listeners, I've actually sent Damien a lot of the things that we're, going to talk, we're talking about here. So uh, I, I thought I'd I thought I'd at least uh, would be on the same same wavelength, you know. Another thing that I find very collectible are um, the old original bookies boards. Now these are the ones that that they you used to you used to move the dot the odds with a little knob that you turned, and the and that would like they were kind of on rollers, and it would turn around, as distinct from what they've got these days, of course, which are all entirely different. But uh, they are very collectible, and that's a ripper, the one I've got there, and it's got the name of the um, of the uh, original bookie up the top, and also some some betting tickets. Uh, Lal Scarrow is one of them, and there's another one there as well. And I've got below those, and these are just about as rare, are an old original bookie's bag. Now, the bookie bags these days are, are quite different. They're They've got their name mostly kind of in a in a kind of a letter set type, but in the earlier days they they were kind of artworked like that one that I've got that you that you can see there the bookie bag for um, uh, for AR wear. So that is those those original ones are worth these days probably three fifty four hundred dollars and the um yeah maybe even yeah around about that sort of a figure and the bookie sports themselves usually go for 
well, closer to $1,000. If you get one of the real old-time <laughs> ones, they did also some which were smaller, which were used at, um, for the dog racing. So, there were, you know, the fields were smaller. Um, they, they, so they were, they were only, only had 10 slots, whereas, um, of course, the racing ones have got up to about, oh, there's about 28, somewhere about 28 or so. And um, uh, so the bookie, the, the ones from the racing are a, a, a lot more collectible, let's put it that way. All right, we've got a number of text messages coming through asking for your evaluation of how much certain sure. memorabilia costs. We'll get to those after the break. You're listening to the Sporting Capital. Welcome back. Damien Watson filling in for Sam Hargraves tonight. We've got Rick Milton on the line, sporting collectible expert. Rick, there's a few text messages that have come through for your opinion. Jazzo from Torquay. I have a horse racing dominator's print signed by Colin Hayes, Bart Cummings and Tommy Smith. What would it be worth? We got you there, Rick. Sure. Yep, yep, gotcha. No, no worries. Uh, yeah, horse racing dominators print signed by Colin Hayes, Bart Cummings, and Tommy Smith. What would it be worth? Says Jazzo from Torquay. That's nice. Uh, um, these days, well, of course, um, it, 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 they have now passed away. So uh, that does make a difference. Also, off the SMS, Tim from Epic says, "Evening, Dub." Uh, I'd say somewhere about. Three four hundred. Okay, interesting. Three, three to four hundred dollars. Three to four hundred dollars. Good on you, Rick. Uh, we've just had yep. a few problems with the uh, phone line there. That should be okay now. Tim from Epic yep. says, "Evening, boys. I've collected the Melbourne Cup race books continuously from 1988 to the current day, all in the brand new and in mint condition. I've never had the value. What would they be worth going back to '88 in particular?" Well, I've got to tell you, the rarest ones. And this goes for all race books. Oh, when we had the COVID, really, and we couldn't go to the track. They still put out the race books, and people didn't know that. And very few people thought to collect the race books from the time when we couldn't go to the racetrack, because they still put them out. So it sounds odd, doesn't it? That some of the more recent ones, are <laughs> some of the more valuable ones, they're good. Uh, but Melbourne, Melbourne, as I said, Melbourne Cup is very collectible. The eighties are worth um, oh about. 40 each, 90s about 20, and the more recent ones are a bit less, of course. But uh, yeah, you've got a, that's a nice collection. And uh, if I was you, if, if I was the the caller, I'd be looking to go back a little bit further. And if they would ever wish, I can leave a phone number and I can probably help them with some of the some of the earlier ones, if oh, need be. Fantastic. There you go, Tim from Epping. Feel free to text yep. in your number. Uh, also, off the SMS, David Bernder. I have a brochure from the 1956 Melbourne Olympics with a full map of Melbourne and events times. How much would that be worth, says David, off the text machine? People did keep things that relate to the Olympics, and there's not a great deal. Sounds odd, doesn't it? Because it's now 1956, 44, or 66 years ago. But uh, there are still there's still a lot of Melbourne memorabilia available. That one's worth somewhere about 30 around about $30. All right, and Daniel has texted thing, in. Yeah, go I just explain. The things that do sell best from the Olympics, 56, are the, the events that not many people went to. For example, the rowing and the obscure events, hockey. 
Mm-hmm. Those are the those tend to be the ones that have the bigger value. W- ones that were at the uh, MCG or the swimming and so forth came out in the hundreds of thousands. But uh, and uh, but the one around about thirty dollars for your for your caller around about. Fantastic. And the last one here from Daniel off the text. Good evening, Jeds. I have a fully signed Nike Aero 2 match issued an unused ball from the A-League Grand Final from early 2007. Fully signed from the Melbourne Victory squad, plus the coach, Ernie Merrick. This was a squad that won 6-0 in that memorable final. Similarly, I have a sealed and official match program from that Grand Final called the Final 90. Haven't seen either of these around for the last 10 or so years. Not sure how much these would be valued at, asks Daniel. Sign items are tending to sell for less these days than they did, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And part of the reason is that um, the sporting people have lost... They don't have penmanship anymore because they use, you know, they use the computer. Not many people write anymore. So as a result, the autographs in many cases are almost impossible to decipher. Uh, it's a funny thing. Usually, if you've got a, like, say, a signed football, the only, the only, generally about the only one you can read is the coach because he's an old bloke. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, <laughs> but uh, not, a, not, a, not as much as you might expect. Uh, sad to say, because you, you're not going to be able to read a lot of those signatures. The big advantage, of course, is that it's a victory, and it was a spectacular victory. That was a victory and a half. That one, uh, about uh, about eighty the the, the pair. All right, Rick, really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for jumping on. Yeah, sure. Good on you, Damien. And by the way, uh, shall I leave a phone number in case people do wish to pick up on some certain things? Do they do it through you or how do we do that? Yeah, I'm happy to read it out on air after the break. Okay. And a big welcome back to the Sporting Capital on this Thursday night. Damien Watson in the chair filling in for Sammy Hargraves tonight. Just quickly, a live score update from the NBL at 63 apiece. The Cairns Taipans have fought back. We've just started the last period in that encounter. Melbourne United 63, now trailing Cairns 65, who have hit the front. So we'll keep you up to date with that result there. Earlier on this evening, South East Melbourne, they defeated the New Zealand Breakers quite convincingly in the end and against the odds to 99 to 77. Now, Rick Mild, of course, was on with us just before with his sporting collectibles. He's asked me to send out his number. If you have any other sporting collectible inquiries or any offers, 0418-339-103. Michael, from Reservoir, I noticed your question came in just before the break. So if you want to give him a call, feel free to do so to have that question answered around the West Torrens team in the SAFL, 0418-339-103. Time to turn our attention now to the English Premier League, and there's been plenty of midweek action, a bit of controversy too, particularly in relation to the clash between Manchester United and Tottenham. Joining me on the line direct from the UK is BBC broadcaster Chris Coles. Welcome to you again, Chris. Hello, Damien. Nice to be with you as always. Thanks very much, because I know we've used you twice in a week, so I have to start giving you an invoice, Chris. Uh, What did you make, make, speaking of big invoices, (laughs) what did you make of Cristiano Ronaldo? He walked off the pitch before the final whistle. Does that hint a little bit of tension in the camp involving him and maybe the hierarchy? Yeah, well, you mentioned the regularity in which we're speaking these days. Our conversation, what, hours ago, it feels like, about Cristiano Ronaldo, about the unease between both club and player because of his lack of involvement. He he clearly still thinks he can do a decent job for Manchester United. And lo and behold, 
24 hours after we speak, 48 hours after we speak, he's in the headlines again for all the wrong reasons, for leaving Old Trafford before the end of the game. He he started against Tottenham, and United looked very, very good, actually, that they were very impressive in that victory. They beat Spurs 2-0. All right, Tottenham were nowhere near their best, but still, very good performance. He was substituted, Cristiano Ronaldo, and he left in the 89th minute. He walked out, walked down a tunnel, and we thought, okay, we've said before, maybe he'll just disappear into the dressing room, but no, he left. And Eric Ten Hag once again is having to is having to deal with all these questions about, well, what about his future? What happens now? And he said to the game, Ten Hag, the manager, look, I'll deal with it. We'll deal with it internally. It's not about today. We're celebrating this victory, but tomorrow we'll have to deal with it. But who knows? Who knows where the future lies? Um, because he clearly wanted out in the summer. He doesn't seem particularly happy at the moment. So he is starting every now and again. He's not really scoring with the same regularity as he did or has been doing recently. But it's interesting, David, where this comes to an end and how this comes to an end. Because Ronaldo is a big draw, I think, for clubs. But I think a lot of clubs now will look and say, do we really need this sort of drama that seems to follow mm. Cristiano Ronaldo around? And that's even before you get to wage demands and, and things like that. And it, it's interesting to know where he might go. And I think that'll be a problem for Ronaldo. Clubs perhaps aren't willing to take a 37-year-old twilight of his career. I think there's no doubt he's probably got a few years left in him because he keeps himself really fit. But I'm not sure where he goes from here. And yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how Eric Ten Hag deals with his latest situation and, and whether Cristiano Ronaldo remains a, a big part of this Manchester United side. We have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely right. I think in terms of my personal view on it, surely as part of being a member of a team, you stay until the final whistle is blown in support of your teammates, doesn't it? It gives that impression, and it's been mentioned, that yeah. effectively he thinks he's bigger than the entire team and the entire franchise. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I don't think you'll find many that, that disagree with with that sentiment. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a legend of the game, like Cristiano Ronaldo undoubtedly is. The numbers speak for themselves. He's, he's in this battle, isn't he, with Lionel Messi to be described as the best player in the world. And, and you'll have your favourite. There'll be plenty that, that are in Messi's camp and plenty that are in Ronaldo's camp. It doesn't matter if you are Ronaldo or if you are a kid making your way in the game and maybe playing your very first ever game, you just do not leave. You support your team through thick and thin. And, yeah, it, it just does not look good and it just does not sit right with, with anyone watching the game. And if you're a Manchester United fan, I think the sadness for United fans are that this was, and still is, a, a huge player in Manchester United's history. His first spell at the club, he was sensational. He won plenty. He won the Champions League. He won numerous Premier League titles. He got that big move to Real Madrid. And when he came back to Old Trafford, it did feel like, well, here we go, unfinished business. Manchester United, they've got Ronaldo back, and, and he might be the catalyst to lead them back into the Champions League. And it just hasn't really worked out that way. And it'll be such a shame if this relationship ends on a sour note, which it looks like it might do now. It, it will be a, a real shame. And, and yeah, if Eric Ten Hag, the manager... You're, you're, you really are, I think, at your wit's end with this because, yeah, you, you're having to answer questions every time on Ronaldo and not the team. And last night, it should have been about the team because they were very good. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this chapter ends. But the, the longer it goes on and the more Ronaldo makes the news for all the wrong reasons, you, you just feel that, that this relationship will have a, a, a sour end, which will be a shame. 
Just a last one on this issue. This is probably a little bit over the top to say it would tarnish his legacy in a way, but the mud will stick for a while, won't it? Whenever you refer to Cristiano Ronaldo, that will probably get brought up for a little while to come. Absolutely, yeah. And his his recent antics will 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 be remembered, as you say, for all the, the wrong reasons. And yet, yeah, maybe over time, when when Ronaldo eventually does retire. Uh, I'm sure we'll all look back at his numbers and, and what he's won in the game and all the rest of it and think this was undoubtedly one of the game's greats. But you just, when you talk about the, the pantheon of greats in this game, and he will be mentioned at the top with plenty of players and, as mentioned, Lionel Messi, you just don't hear this sort of thing with Messi. And Messi strikes you as the, the, the far more all-rounded individual that that wouldn't do something like this. And you just wouldn't expect it from a player of Ronaldo's quality and calibre because he knows how it looks. He knows how all of this plays out. So, yeah, my overriding emotion is it it is a shame. I I think whenever I'm asked about Ronaldo or Messi, I often think, well, we're just privileged to be in an era where we can watch both of them perform at the top level. So for this to happen, I just think it, it is just a shame because Ronaldo has provided us with so many wow moments that if this is the way that his career ends, then it, it's just really, really disappointing. Uh, he's separating himself from his team. He's separating himself from from a, a, a big club in Manchester United. Um, it, you know, he, he's almost 38, Damien. This is not a 21-year-old. This is a this is this is a guy who is at the very much end of his career. You, you think that um, you think that in his mind he knows that this is not good and the optics don't look great. Uh, yeah, I think he'll. He has some work to do. I think to repair that relationship with with well with, his, with Manchester United fans first and foremost. That's it. We're speaking with Chris Coles, direct from the UK, talking all things EPL. If you want to text in any observations or any questions, zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. With thanks to Temper Consumers Choice winner, Temper mattresses, pillows, and adjustable bases conforms to the exact shape of your body. Going to the game itself, Man United defeating Tottenham 2-0. It's a big scalp. I know, as you said, Tottenham weren't at their best, but still a big scalp. What have been the main attributes which have turned things around this season for Man United? Because things were looking grim in the early weeks. Yeah, they, they, they really were. And, and we remember those those standout results very early on in Eric Ten Hag's tenure at, at Manchester United, in particular the 4-0 defeat at Bournemouth very early on. I, I think what surprised us, I remember actually, David, speaking to you at the start of the season, when Manchester United had been uh, on tour, where you are now in Australia, and, and they yep. toured that part of the world, and they looked pretty good. That they, they they looked like a cohesive unit. That the, the players they brought in looked like quite smart additions to the side. In, in Martinez at the back, and and, and Rafael Varane had been there for a, for a little bit. They seemed to be together and forming quite a, a decent partnership. Jadon Sancho looked like the player that Manchester United wanted to sign, i.e. a, a winger that, that terrorises defence and, and was very good for Borussia Dortmund. And then the start of the season, yeah, it all seemed to just slide away and Manchester United were guilty of all the problems that had been plaguing them for so many years. They gave the ball away in, in horrendous positions. They didn't really look like a team. And then we throw in the, the Cristiano Ronaldo situation. It, it, it didn't look great. But recently now, they are starting to to look like a team that can knock on the door of the top four. It's interesting that we mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo. He, he didn't start uh, yesterday. My apologies. He was an unused sub. He didn't start the game. Um, and actually, dare I say it, Manchester United look sometimes like a better team without 
Cristiano Ronaldo because that they are slowly getting there. David De Gea in goal looks looks far more assured with the ball at his feet. The game against Brentford was one of his errors that led to the goal. He gave the ball away and Brentford scored. Uh, Martinez and Varane, as, as mentioned, they're looking like a good centre-back pairing. Now, Casemiro, the Real Madrid signing, is a big signing. He's taking his time to get into the team, but in that midfield role, he looks like the player that, well, won all those titles and Champions Leagues with Real Madrid. Fred is improving and scoring goals. Anthony, the signing from Ajax, looks a very good player. And Bruno Fernandes last night was also back to his best when he's controlling games, when he's conducting the orchestra in front of him. He looks like such an organiser and he, he was probably the man of the match last night. Um, and as mentioned, Jadon Sancho looks like he's slowly getting there. Marcus Rashford looks back to somewhere near his, his best, or at least his belief and confidence is returning. Throw all of those things together and you get a Manchester United side that can mix it with the very best in this league. It's just a case of whether they can now keep this going. With some interesting games coming up, they've got Chelsea away from home next. Chelsea's still unbeaten under Graham Potter. And then in the Premier League, it's games against West Ham, Aston Villa, Fulham, Nottingham Forest, Wolves, Bournemouth. So there are the games that you think if you're Manchester United, yep, you target maximum points and see where that gets you because they're not a million miles away from it all. That's right. You mentioned West Ham in that stretch. They went down to Liverpool. It was a great individual performance from Darwin Nunes as well. He secured that 1-0 win. He's starting to become a cult figure, isn't he? Yeah. The way he plays, he's just box office Darwin Nunes. You just suspect that the goals he scores for Liverpool are, are not going to be dull. Uh, it was a very, very good goal that he scored against West Ham last night. He, he had a couple of audacious efforts as well that, that had they gone in, we'd have been talking about for, for weeks and weeks. And he just plays with that that, that, that glorious swagger that we, 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 I think, love to see sometimes. I think he's one of those players that he plays for your side. You think, yeah, we absolutely love him. And if you're against him, you, 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 you turn him into a bit of a villain because he's got that that nasty streak. And we actually saw it to his detriment a couple of weeks ago when um, when he was sent off uh, for uh, headbutting, I think it was Joachim Anderson, wasn't it? Crystal Palace's Joachim Anderson a few weeks ago. But since then, he's he's really found his, his feet at, at Liverpool and he's scoring some excellent goals. He, he got one in the 7-1 demolition of Rangers in the Champions League a couple of weeks ago, scored against Arsenal. And then last night, scored against West Ham. When I think Liverpool are at their best and they're creating chances and, and Salah's getting back to where he was, Yes, Liverpool have been hit with injuries, so Diego Jota now is out for a fair while. But Roberto Firmino is coming back to, to good form. Uh, Salah, is, as mentioned, and Nunez looking decent. The youngsters are, are beginning to stake a claim in the side too, the likes of Fabio Carvalho and Harvey Elliott as well. But if Liverpool can find a, a number nine like Darwin Nunez, he can play on the left and he has played there regularly, but if he can play down the middle target man, focal point, be the person that Liverpool rely on and take the burden off Mo Salah, then I think Liverpool have a, a real star on their hands and, and throw in a little bit of stardust that he undoubtedly has. Yeah, he's one to keep an eye on. And I think a player that when you see him on the starting lineup, you think, yeah, we're going to get something today. We don't know what it might be. It could be a red card. It could be a hat trick. Um, but he's going to keep us on the edge of our seats. And those are the kind of players that we absolutely love. Gray from Darwin says, yeah, like where Liverpool are at right now, Darwin Nunez, a goal-scoring foundation stone. Thank you, Gray, at listing there all the way up in Darwin. Now, just in relation to another result, Everton suffered their third consecutive loss. The Toffees, they went down to Newcastle. How do they turn things around at the moment? Yeah, it, it, it's 
it's concerning for Everton because it feels like we've been here before and they're, and they're going through exactly what they went through last season where they struggled for large parts of the campaign. They replaced the manager. Frank Lampard comes in, uh, keeps the club up. And it was hoped that a summer of rebuilding and a summer of spending might get Everton away from the relegation zone and, and where a position to where they feel they should be, which is a club of Everton's history and a club of Everton's stature towards the top end of the table. We remember under David Moyes for, for large parts of his tenure, he was getting them up into the European places and they were challenging. And there was talk of Everton breaking into the, the top four, but that they found it very, very difficult. It, it's a situation, I think, if you're an Everton fan, where you look at the teams that you're playing and think, OK, we have to be a little bit realistic, perhaps. The last three games, all been losses, but to Manchester United, Tottenham and Newcastle. Tottenham and Newcastle, both away from home. We know Tottenham are very strong, especially at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. It, it's, it's been the foundation, really, of, of Spurs' good season so far. It's why they're third in the league and four points off top. Newcastle, well, we all know about Newcastle, and we all know about their spending, and we all know about the team that Eddie Howe has developed at St. James's Park. It's very, very good. And now that that city is absolutely buzzing with its football club again, it's not always been the case. The years under Mike Ashley, the owner, fans were really, really frustrated at the way it was being run. There's lots of controversy, clearly, about the Saudi Arabian takeover. But parking that football side, it's a joy to watch Newcastle at the moment. And they're scoring brilliant goals. They've got an excellent team. Miguel Almiron, his goal last night was superb. But throw in the, the, the quality of, of Bruno Guimaraes, the goals of Callum Wilson. Uh, Joel Linton seems to be completely reinvented under Eddie Howe. This is a very, very good Newcastle team. It's no surprise they're currently sixth in the Premier League table and they're on an excellent run of form. So if you're Everton, you look and think, OK, those three teams, difficult. But the game's coming up. Palace at home, Fulham away, Leicester at home. Bournemouth away, Wolves at home. What a run that is. That is a run that Frank Lampard needs to pick up points. And I think if you look at the last three games, yes, they might have lost. Take Tottenham out because Everton, yes, they had their moments, but Tottenham always felt like they were in control of that game. They've, they've been in games, and their team is a good team to compete at this level. Throw in Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who's slowly getting back to full fitness. He started, I think, for the first time this season, last night at Newcastle, played 73 minutes. Getting back up to full fitness... And I think Everton will be fine. I, I can't see them getting into the kind of trouble that they did last season. And I suspect that over the course of the next four or five games, they will pick up the points required to pull themselves out of trouble. And if they don't, and Everton face a problem like they had last season, well, interesting. We'll see what happens with Frampard and we'll see what happens with the World Cup. As mentioned to you last time, Damien, this is the big unknown, I think, for lots of these clubs. Yeah. What do you do if you're struggling before the World Cup? Well, do you get rid of your manager to give you a month to find a new one? Do you hope that the break for the World Cup does the team good and you can come back at Christmas and hit the ground running? Fascinating to see what happens. But for Everton, I still think they'll be OK. But clearly, there's a big few weeks ahead. That's it. So maybe some lights at the end of the tunnel for all the Toffees fans out there. Speaking with Chris Coles, direct from the UK. Just a couple of matches to come in this worky week. Fulham take on Aston Villa and... Yeah, Marks Mitrovic is back. How much of an impact does he have and does it change the complexion of the game? I think he might have dropped out. That's probably the uh, fifth time we've had a drop out tonight. <laughs> Let's try him again. Chris, have we got you? 
No, I think Chris has dropped out. So what we might do is we'll take a break. More to come on the other side of the Sporting Capital, 0433-981116 to text you. You can give us a call as well, one 736 736 Just off the SMS here, Daryl from Ballarat says, 25-year member I am, a Geelong 25-year member. Just checking in on the Richmond person that rang up in round 17 and said that Richmond would win all of their games and beat Geelong in the finals. Ha ha, Merry Christmas. Thank you, Daryl. So there you go, a bit of fight there off the text machine, which is fair enough. 0433-981116, as I said, to text in. We'll take a break. Water Cup on the Sporting Capital after this. Welcome back. Damian Watson here with you. I think we've got Chris Coles back on the line to talk things EPL, all things EPL. There we go. He's up. Chris, uh, sorry about all that. Hello. Just uh, bring you back no, for don't a worry. couple of questions. Fulham take on Aston Villa. Mm. I was just going to say, their marksman, Fulham Mitrovic, returning to the side. How big of an impact is that? Do you think it changes the complexion of the game and the result? Yeah, well, Fulham would much rather have him than not. No question. And he has been very impressive. Yeah, this season, he's one of those players that even he must get so sick of it. Labelled as a player that can do it in the championship, but not in the Premier League. He is prolific in the championship. He often scores between 20 and 50 goals whenever he's played at the second tier level. And then when he's in the Premier League, he doesn't quite replicate it. This time, however, he is replicating 11 goals already this season. He's been fantastic for, uh, for Fulham. Three of those did come for Serbia. Um, against Sweden, but he still has eight, which is a, a more than commendable tally at this stage of the season. And he's very, very important for, for Fulham. And they were mightily relieved to have him on the weekend. There were doubts over his involvement, uh, but he played and he scored a penalty in a two-all draw against Bournemouth. And he will be, I'm sure, a prominent part of, of Fulham's team for their game against Aston Villa this evening. And it's a big one for Villa because Stephen Gerrard, legendary Liverpool player had really well at Rangers as a manager got the job at Aston Villa but it's safe to say that it hasn't really gone to plan for him he's over a year in charge now and Villa haven't really kicked on to the kind of levels that the very ambitious owners want the club to be at they've spent money they've got some big players in Philip Coutinho being the main one really in terms of, of, of quality or at least in terms of a worldwide name but he's not playing well at the moment and Villa are struggling, which is why Gerard is very much under pressure and he needs to find results quickly because the Premier League table does not look great for Villa, only just above the relegation zone. And, and if results don't go their way in the next couple of weeks, they could easily find themselves inside the relegation zone. They're without a win in, in three. They got fairly laboured draws against Leeds and Nottingham Forest and they lost to Chelsea at Villa Park. And their run of games, big two, Fulham, Brentford, Newcastle. So this is a really interesting game for Fulham. And if you're Marco Silva, you're very happy with the start you've made to the season. You're sitting pretty much mid-table. You were widely tipped for, for relegation. They've, they've come a bit of a yo-yo club, Fulham, and they go up, they, come, they go down, they come back up, they go back down. This year, they seem to have a, a squad that is capable of, of staying in the Premier League. And if they are too, then, yeah, as mentioned, Alexander Mitrovic is, is very much key to that. So, yeah, really interesting game at Craven Cottage this evening or later later on for you guys. Yeah, in the very, very early parts of the morning. Now, just lastly, Leicester mm. take on Leeds. Leeds, I think the supporters feel a little bit hard done by their loss to Arsenal, but maybe this could be an opportunity to channel their frustration into a big win. Surely they beat Leicester here pretty easily. 
Well, you think so because Leeds, despite losing the game against Arsenal, were in second half. All right, I think that's the sixth time uh, we've had a dropout tonight. Uh, I'll tell you what, we might leave it there with Chris. Have we got you back? Hello, can you hear me? We got you back. Uh, go ahead, sorry, Chris, it dropped out again. Oh, hello. No, 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 don't worry, don't worry. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief just in case. Uh, yeah, Leeds, they, they played very well against Arsenal. They, they, they deserve to get something from the game. Patrick Bamford... Missed a penalty. Had they got that and got a point, then no one would have grumbled. So they're playing well enough to win games. Leicester, well, bottom of the table. I'm not sure many saw that coming. We talk of Stephen Gerrard being under pressure. Uh, no question Brendan Rodgers is under pressure as Leicester City manager. This is a team that for the last few years have been right towards the top end of the table, qualifying for the Europa League, very close to qualifying for the Champions League. Of course, they won the thing back in 2016. It's not where Leicester want to be. And you, you do fear for them if they don't get a result tonight. They are at home, so that is a, a clear benefit. Although the atmosphere at the King Power Stadium, as you can imagine, is not ideal and not great. So this is a really, really interesting game. If Leeds can start well, turn the crowd, then I think they can go on and win the game. But Leicester, we know they have it in them to, to play well. They, they thrashed local rivals Nottingham Forest 4-0 uh, the other day, they got a nil-nil draw against Crystal Palace in their last game at home. It was pretty uninspiring, but it was something to build on. So if Brendan Rodgers can, can keep that defensive solidity and get the team scoring further up the field, then it could be interesting. But yeah, fascinating because Leeds themselves, not really where they want to be. They've got a couple of games in hand on the teams above them. And if they were to win them, they'd be right up there in the top 10. But as it stands, they're just a poor, they, well, they're level on points actually with Villa and Wolves. They're only outside the relegation zone by virtue of goal difference. So, yeah, a couple of really interesting games this evening. They might not have the glamour of some of the, the games at the top end of the table, but considering that the teams playing one another are all towards the bottom end of the table, even though we're very early on in the season, yeah, it does have the feel of, a, of an important evening. Oh, Chris, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for talking all things English Premier League with us and all the best up there in the UK as the weather starts to get a bit cooler. Oh, thanks, Damien. Yeah, end it on a good note, won't you? Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> cheers. Very much, uh, very much enjoy chatting as always, and I'll speak soon. Good on you. Chris Coles joining us here from the BBC. We will take a break. Damien Watson here with you on the Sporting Capital. More to come on the other side. Just quickly, Namibia currently 5 for 49 after nine overs. They're trying to chase down a target of 149, so it looks as if the UAE should get the job done. They're halfway through the innings virtually, and they still need another 100 runs to claim. So I can't see it happening given they've lost five wickets already and they're into their middle order. So... We'll wait and see, but I'll definitely keep you up to date just from an NBL point of view as well. Melbourne United in action against the Cairns Taipans. Melbourne United led for much of the first half and a bit. Cairns overtook them in the third period and really ran away to claim a scalp. 81-77 to 77 over Melbourne United. And despite the early optimism, Melbourne United go down again. So questions to be asked. And Cairns... They're in pretty good form at the moment. Earlier on in the evening, the South East Melbourne Phoenix defeated the New Zealand Breakers 99-77 in pretty convincing fashion. They led for much of the match in always dictated terms, it's fair to say. Now, we'll throw this out to the listeners just as we head to the break. Given the potential for Ross Lyon to coach St Kilda again, what are the best returns to an original club or organisation in sport that you can think of throughout history? 
Feel free to call in. one 736 on the Harcourts open line. Your move, your Harcourts. Or you can text in 0433-981116. Think back. Doesn't necessarily have to be the best. It can be the worst as well. Best or worst returns to an original club. Any sports person could be an administrator as well. one 736 We'll discuss that on the other side. You're listening to the Sporting Capital. Welcome back. We've thrown the topic out there. 0433 if you want to text in and you can call it as well. one 736 Given the potential for Ross Lyon to return as St Kilda coach, this could be any sporting organisation. What are the best or worst returns to an original club slash organisation in sport? Joining me and he's compiled a list already is my producer, Lincoln Allen, who's in the studio. Link, it's an interesting topic. It is. certainly is, Damo. They, as a Fremantle fan, I could it, I had three basically come up straight away when yeah, I was a few going there. back yesterday to think about it. But no, I do have a little list compiled together. All right. I'll think of a few of the Fremantle ones now off the top of my head. We've got a caller on the line as well. Heath Black, he returned after a stint at St Kilda. McPhee, didn't he come back? Essendon as well in the in the middle there. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, there were a couple around that era. Well, there, was a, there was a Trent Crowe who went Hawthorne, Fremantle, Hawthorne. Yeah. Correct. Chris Tarrant, Collingwood, Fremantle, Collingwood. Yes. So we got on the wrong end of the stick of a couple of them, but we, we got a couple of good ones as well. And there's some that have come in and out of retirement as well off the SMS, Steve from Mill Park. David Cloak, back to Richmond from Collingwood, was pretty good. Kicked a bag in his last game, quite right, against the Blues back in 1991, I reckon towards the back end of the season when Kevin Bartlett was still coach. That's a good one. And Bob Ian Darwin, or Gray, I think he calls himself. Gary Ablett Senior returning in 1991 to Geelong after quitting the game. That's right. He returned via a reserves match at Princess Park back that year. And that was controversial at the time because Geelong as a town was going through a really tough time. They had the collapse of the Pyramid Building Society, which was a big part of their economic life down there. A lot of people were out of work and they relied on the footy team, you know, to keep the morale up. And, yeah, that was another dagger in the heart for a lot of people in the early 90s. But he came back and he had a great career, into the career. Let's head to Shy, who's in St Kilda. We'll get to your list in a moment, Link, but Shy's called in. How are you, Shy? Yeah, good, good. Um, look, it's not football, but yeah, it's, it's hard to go past um, Michael Jordan. Leaving after three years and three rings and, you know, going to play baseball and then coming back and winning another three rings. Yeah, that is a good one. He had a bit of an epiphany, didn't he? He went to play baseball. I think that was part of the reason, because his father passed away, of course, in tragic circumstances, yeah. and I think that prompted his move into baseball and then came back. You've been spoiling my list, Shaw. You must have been reading it now. <laughs> he was my number one I had on the top of my list. Yeah, um, I couldn't really think of any footy ones, but yeah, that's the... Uh... That, that's probably the best one out there. I think it's hard to go past that. I mean, in terms of winning championships and awards. So, yeah. That's right. And remember, Shy, he came back. He obviously left after the famous 1998 NBA Finals, was out of the game for a few years, and he yeah. came back to Washington in 2001, and he announced his comeback the morning of, or it might have been the night before the September 11 attacks. And that took the shine off it, obviously, because of what happened. But he wasn't the same when he came back. But he was—I think he was like thirty-eight or something. He was, yeah, yeah, he was pretty old. 
That's right. Maybe he was getting a bit bored of retirement or something. Tony Lockett was in that same camp, wasn't he? He retired at the end of the 99 season. was in the media for a couple of years, actually, and then he came back in 2002. He was a lot leaner and, and actually skittier. But uh, he only played a few games because he just keeps struggling with injury, ultimately. But uh, there's a good nomination, yeah. Shy. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Good on you. Shy from St Kilda there. Happy for you to call in. one three hundred seven three six seven three six on the Harcourts open line for all things real estate. Speak to Harcourts. What have you got in your list? Uh, I know MJ was on there, but are you others? Um, sticking with the Fremantle theme to kick it off, I've got Peter Bell. Obviously, two games as an inaugural Fremantle player in 1995 before joining North Melbourne. The following year, winning two premierships in 96 and 99. He returned to Fremantle ahead of the 2001 season. Played 161 games up until 2008. But one thing with Bell, since his retirement from football, he's been really influential. He was in the media for a bit, but um, as the general manager of football at Fremantle, I think he's done a really good job. Yeah, that's the thing. People forget he did have a stint. I think he played in the first game and kicked a goal in the first game that Fremantle played against Richmond. Played both games against Richmond in 1995. He kicked two in the inaugural game. That's right. I wonder why he didn't play. It would test my memory why he didn't play more that year. But he might have been touted it was part of a very complicated trade and that was the reason why he went to North Melbourne. Andrew McLeod was meant to get picked up by Fremantle, people forget, uh, in that first year but went to the Crows of course and he had a fantastic career. Any others? There's a few coming in off the text machines. A good topic, Link. Um, there was one on the text saying a lot of Gazza on there. They've got Gary, Gary Ablett Senior. Senior. I've got yeah. Gary Ablett Junior. I've in yes. my sheet here I've said the best player I've ever seen live, Gary Ablett Junior. Um, obviously, a father-son selection who, after a slow start at the club, became a dual premiership player and Brownlow medalist in his first stint at Geelong. He then obviously moved to the Gold Coast and was the inaugural captain of the club, won another Brownlow. He moved back to Geelong in 2018 in playing a further 55 matches. I think he would have been number one on the list if he had won another premiership in his second stint. Even ahead of MJ? I think I, I, think I would have had him. Yeah. Just yeah, it would have been, it just it would have been the fairytale finish for Gary to have that twenty twenty flag. It wasn't to be, but obviously still a magnificent career. Yeah, plenty coming in off the text machine. Greg and Burabak, LeBron James returning to Cleveland and winning a championship as per his promise. That's a very good one. It's interesting. Two of the greatest in NBA history feature in that list, but that's the NBA really. You go to where the offers are, and fair enough too. And often you lure back. Well, we can just about skip over that one because my next one on the list is LeBron James. <laughs> obviously, we, we, he's Cleveland and then to Miami where yeah. he obviously just went. He had an unbelievable stint there and he went back to Cleveland who was, and was very influential in that um, title in 2016. Number four, I think you might have been talking about it before, um, Cristiano Ronaldo going from yep. Manchester United. From He was there his first stint 2003 and 2009. He later joined Real Madrid and Juventus, yeah. and then he came back in 2021 as played 38 matches since his return. And then, obviously, my number one spot was Michael Jordan, who we spoke about earlier. Yeah, that's a good list. I think that's a pretty accurate one at that. A few more off the SMS. David Parker went back to Carlton as coach. That's right. He coached the Blues to back-to-back premierships in 81 and 82, his first two years as coach. At the end of 85, went to Fitzroy, coached there for a few years, and then was out of it, I think, for a couple of years, and then the Blues brought him back, and it's funny. John Elliott, who was the Carlton president at the time when Parker was on his way out at the end of 85, he said, ah, oh, 
Don't worry about it, Parco. There'll be a time and a place when you're the, you'll be the right man to coach this club again. And that actually came to pass. In 1991, he came back, coached the Blues to the 95 flag, and he was there until the end of 2000. He had a bit of a wasn't called a succession plan at the time, but he had a bit of a succession plan with Wayne Britton to take over. So that's an example. And John Kennedy Sr. for Hawthorne. People forget he coached the Hawks to the 1961 flag, their first ever. And then I think he had a break during the middle of the 60s because he had to, back then, obviously, players and coaches had jobs outside of football. It wasn't a professional game back then. I think he had a job in education and he went over to Stall to have some sort of senior role in education because he was a school principal. And that's basically why he left. And then he came back to Hawthorne and coached them to the 1971 and also 1976 flags. So there's plenty in history that have actually done it. It's just maybe not as controversial as Ross, assuming Ross does go back to St Kilda. Another one I did try to sneak in was Ash Barty, but I could, going... If you're playing tennis, you're not really playing for a club. Obviously, went to the Brisbane Heat for the inaugural women's big bash season. She could come back. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> to well, the Brisbane Heat. Maybe if she goes back to the Brisbane Heat, then we'll put her on the list. But um, wasn't really a club per se playing um, at the Australian Open, so I couldn't quite sneak her in. But there's a, another half example. Uh, there's a few more off the SMS machine. Anonymous here. Luke Beveridge, player back to the Bulldogs to coach the historic second premiership. That's right. He played for the Bulldogs as well as St Kilda, and there he went back to the club to coach them to the 2016 flag. So that's a very good one as well off the SMS machine. And uh, if France win the World Cup, says Michael, then Karim Benzema. Yeah, fair enough. Of course, you go back to France of 98 as well. Uh, fantastic performance in the 98 World Cup. Let's head to Lockie, who's on the road, who's got a nomination. How are you, Lockie? Hey, lads. It's his dad, Chris. I was just at the top end, um game against Melbourne United uh, United yeah yep. so if anyone was to talk about it, it was pretty obvious what happened uh, no structure with United and uh, should have won easily but didn't have the structure which is and I was um, so it was really weird because um, they were very stressed and they weren't happy but um, cans were very sorted and very organised well, that's right, and you've got to remember, too, they beat in good form coming into this game, and we spoke about it with Nathan Strimple before. I think I would have tipped them to win the Taipans because they've been pretty well-structured and stable across their entire roster. So I think that does count for a bit. There's obviously been a little bit of talk about Caroline for Melbourne United as well. What are your thoughts on Caroline? Um, Caroline, um, what, I, what I noticed, if in my opinion, again, I was courtside, and I'm a massive NBA fan, not so much NBL, but my work made me go in a box, which is awesome, and <laughs> free drinks and free food, so happy days. Yeah. Um, but what I noticed was that the refs sold right behind the bench for uh, United, and what I noticed was that effectively the refs were always coming over to Vickerman to say, hurry up, hurry up, get off the timeout. And yet every single time, every single time, and you can check all the, the video, um, the Cairns type ends were out. They were on us. They were on us. It looked like, um, and it really did, it looked like United was so unorganized it wasn't funny. And that's only because of the delay and the refs keep going into their hole every time they had a timeout. And I'm a basketball nuffy, and I, I could see it. I was right behind it. Mm. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I've been. Anyway, I just find that interesting. Yeah, maybe it's a reflection Pardon? on them as well. Uh, I, I must admit, I haven't seen the game because I was I've been working here, but I certainly trust your uh, judgment there, Lockie, given you were basically well, courtside. Well, well, I, w- I was literally I was in a corporate box, two seats back, directly behind the bench, and no, I'm just fascinated because again, I don't really care who wins. Um, again, I'm an NBA fan yeah. um, and an AFL fan, but, you know, work wants me to go to these. So that's great. And it was awesome fun. Had a few drinks, all that, happy days. But all I'm saying is that it was very interesting to see the delay every single time out where cans were coming out early. They were much more efficient. Yeah. Sorry, from an outside viewpoint. And I'm not, and I, I all I, my kids are in, Four kids play basketball, and it's just obvious. It, anyway, it seemed obvious. Whatever. I, no, I just thought I'd call in because I listen to SEN nonstop. That's fair enough. Uh, just before I let you go, Lockie, what are your thoughts on Ben Simmons made his debut for the Brooklyn Nets and was a little bit underwhelming by all <laughs> yeah. accounts? What are your thoughts? For real? Um, I want him to go, okay, I do. Like, I never wish bad on anyone. Um, I have the NBA league pass, so I watch every game, or you know, and I do keep an eye on Josh Giddy, etc. What do I think? I think I hope he's not as flaky as what it looked like. If that makes sense, and I really hope that because I don't want anyone to be going through terrible mental states, mm-hmm. and it, he doesn't look right. He looks a bit. When I see him on the court, he doesn't look too bad. What do you think? What What are your thoughts? I want him to succeed as well. Look, I think it really does come down to persistence and how long he wants to keep going. I think if he can push through and mature a little bit, and it's not entirely his fault, this whole saga over the last couple of years either, but I think if he matures a little bit, I think he, he builds up resilience. I think he can get through it. I have faith in him. Did you, did you watch today? Sorry, the game itself? Did you watch him? I watched a little bit of it, yeah. He obviously was fouled out of the game, so, you know, his impact was nullified as a result. I was in two or three. I think I thought he was their best player um, in terms of all round. They were soundly beaten, yeah. Yeah, they were massively smashed. But Durant was crap until the second half when it was over. Uh, Irving took a lot of ball. I actually thought he was their better player until he got pretty much found out. Um, yeah, no, I think they're a mess, and it's not what I wanted. It's there. We will take a break. Back with more on the other side. You're listening in to the Sporting Capital. Welcome back. Namibia 7 for 72 at the moment. They're not going to win. The UAE should win their first ever T20 World Cup match in the men's, given they set a target of 149, posting 148 in their 20 overs. So that is going to be interesting in terms of the way the groups pan out. Let's head to our next caller off the call line from Ascot Vale. Go ahead. Uh, hi, I was at the NBL game tonight, Melbourne United versus Cairns Taipans, and we were playing good, but we kind of dropped off a bit, like in the five-minute mark. We we just we were playing good, and yeah. then we lost 
our 10-point lead and it was shocking. Yeah, it was it a decent atmosphere at the very least? I suppose Cairns were coming in as favourites, but uh, Melbourne United, as you mentioned, played pretty well in the first half. How was the atmosphere out there, mate? Yeah, the atmosphere was good. It was a bit quiet um, because it was a Thursday night and a lot yeah. of kids weren't showing up. So, yeah. yeah, when it was like in like the two-minute mark, the, the crowd was really getting up. Yeah, everyone was standing up and cheering on Melbourne United, their home team. How do you think Melbourne United will go? Just before I let you go, how do you think they'll fare this season? First of all, I think we'll we'll do all right. We have we've uh, lost a bit of our stars from last season. Yep. So yeah, I think we'll do pretty good and very well. All right. So they can obviously work their way back. Good on you, mate. Thanks very much for ringing in. Hope you enjoyed the game tonight. You too. Stay up. Good stuff. There you go. Link, uh, just before we wrap things up, good topic from you. There's a few more that have come through off the text machine. Greg says Craig Lowndes started with Holden and then returned after he defected to Ford. That's right. Another good one. Yeah, great. And he had a long stint at Ford yeah. too. Eddie, Eddie Betts one we didn't mention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mick Moldhouse off the SMS. Uh, a few more coming through. 0433981116 for those who have defected and then come back the original club in sport, whether it be an administrator, coach or player. League, thanks for your help tonight. Really appreciate it's it. never a chore working with you, Damo. Well done on the show. Yes, although phone systems think it is a chore to work with me based on what happened tonight. No, it's all right. These things happen. Thanks again for your company tonight on the Sporting Capital. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be live with Campbell Brown for Manicato Stakes Night tomorrow from 7pm across the SEN network. So tune into that. And don't forget to tune into the Men's T20 World Cup action, the SEN app and SEN Fanatic with every single game of the tournament. So you're always going to get value for your company, wherever it may be when it comes to that tournament itself. Thanks again for your time. Take care on this Thursday. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.